VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you very much for tuning into the program. It's Thursday, October the 13th. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, and David Williams. He's the producer of the program. Don't you know it? You'll be speaking with Dave when you give us a shout. To get in the queue and on the air, the topic, well, that is up to you. If you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial is 273-5211. Or elsewhere, it's toll-free long distance, 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 8626. Well, for NHL fans, certainly if you cheer for a Canadian-based team, many of them kicked off their regular season last night. Keep an eye on the best hockey player on the planet. For my money, it's Conor McDavid. I mean... I know there's an argument last year between him and Austin Matthews, and you throw in the Kale McCars of the world and whatever. And McCarr might end up being the best player in the world, but for now it's McDavid. Game one, hat trick, four points, no prob. Love watching that kid play. And look, I will not crow on about a single or sole victory from my beloved Montreal Canadiens who beat the Leafs last night 4-3, but I'm painfully aware that those teams will end up on opposite ends of the standings when push comes to shove. Anyway, you want to talk about it? I'd love to have a little chat about that today. And I think I mentioned this in the past, but I want to give one more shout-out to the group behind the return of the Outer Cove Marines to the Avalon East Senior Hockey League. They haven't been on the ice. The, the news story goes on to say sometime in the mid-'80s. That's not true. I know that to be inaccurate because I was involved with the Outer Cove Marines in the 90s, and that was the last year they played. I coached them out of existence, apparently, <laughs> which is not a great stat on my CV. But anyway, they're coming back. Partnership between the Ron Cadigan Foundation, the legend that is Ron Cadigan, his number 10, is proudly hung in the rafters at the Jackburn Arena. Ronnie's probably best known for the Herder game-winning goal, I believe it's 1979, playing for the Shamrocks. So, But, of course, he is the heart and soul of that region as an ice hockey player. His boys, of course, intimately involved with the Cadigan Foundation, and they're partnered up with Wexford Estates. And back come the Outer Cove Marines. Maybe we should reach out to their new general manager. Quite the position for Tommy Beckett. Now, Tommy would have played for Outer Cove back in the day as well, so welcome back to the show, the show being the Avalon East Senior Hockey League. Now, I'm not really into the celebrity birthday stuff, but every now and then a name just jumps off the page at me. And here's one such instance. I don't know what it was like in your house when you were growing up, the songs and the singers that your parents would have played for you. Maybe their first exposure to rock and roll was Mom or Dad had the Beatles on vinyl, right? And many other, like in our home, there was a lot of the crooners as well. You know, Old Blue, uh, Blue Eyes and Robert Goulet and others. And one of the other singers that was, I don't even know if I'm exaggerating it in my mind. You know what we do when we get older. We remember things differently than the reality of when we were children. But Nana Muscuri, who I would have seen Nana Muscuri more than once for sure. Today's her 88th birthday. She's absolutely incredible. Referred to as one of the goddesses of Euro songbirds. She's a Cretan, uh, Athenian woman. Of course, the jet black hair and the black rimmed glasses. And everyone can picture Nana Muscuri in their mind's eye. She's released over 200 albums in 12 different languages, Greek, French, English, German, Dutch, Italian, Portuguese, Spanish, Hebrew, Welsh, Mandarin, Chinese, and Corsican. Dave, Dave Williams just walks in and shows me she's in my top three. <laughs> Very good. So according to Universal Music Germany, she has sold over 250 million albums. 250 million albums. Of course, I suppose you're going to sell a lot of them when you release 200 of them over the course of her career. 
1950, she was accepted to the Athens Conservatoire. Studied classical music, she was encouraged to dabble with jazz music. Here's what I think is the most fascinating thing about her. Her voice is unmistakable. And as a child, as a result of a medical examination, it was revealed she only had one functioning vocal cord. Nana Muscori, if you've ever heard her sing, one functioning vocal cord, which I guess gives her that very unique sound as a singer, but 88 years ago today, the great Nana Muscori was born. <laughs> so there you go. And did want to give another shout-out to the fact that we've got the We Stand On Guard again coming up. It's a concert coming up for Hurricane Fiona Relief. Of course, it's going to be at Mary Brown Center coming up at the end of this month. The lineup is terrific. I won't go through the entirety of it, but it is more than worth your while to get down there. We know the devastation remains. The cleanup is ongoing. They're hoping to raise in and around a half a million dollars to send out to the southwest coast to help further the cleanup and restoration effort. So if you just go to mbcenter.ca, of course, Mary Brown's MB, mbcenter.ca, tickets are only $50, well, there's a, a surcharge and the HST, and the proceeds are going to fly that way. So good on uh, Chris Andrews and others who are behind it. And the lineup, absolutely extraordinary. So you can get all the information right there. Either just Google it up and get our VOCM story or go to mbcenter.ca. Concert set for October 30th. If you can't make it to this neck of the woods, you will be able to tune in to VOCM. We're going to cover it for you. I spoke with a lovely lady yesterday, Aruna, from the Hindu Temple. And they're talking about their efforts to raise some money. They're hoping for about $10,000 to send out and get in before the deadline for the Canadian Red Cross to match their dollars. So they're going to have a fundraiser, a takeout of their delicious cuisine. You never know what I'm going to see when I open up my email inbox. And after the show is over, I don't do a whole lot of checking in on the work email because it just becomes overwhelming. But this morning I responded to, I don't know, a couple of dozen. Can you give me that number again? Because I'd like to order a meal for this particular Saturday coming up. You better get at it because they've already sold about, well, over 50% of the numbers of meals they're able to sell you. So call Aruna at 325-3751. Unbelievable how many people ask me to repeat that number. So Aruna, who's absolutely lovely, 325-3751 for the Hindu Temple Fundraiser coming up this Saturday. So terrific stuff. People wanted me to give it out. Your wish is my command. So, while we talk about the various pressures that we feel in our pocketbook, and yes, the so-called transparency we're supposed to see from the PUB, I haven't seen it, but anywho. So the price of gas is down just a little tiny bit, but diesel up around 13 cents, furnace oil around over 9 cents. Now, when the province slash the gas tax, the provincial portion of the gas tax, by 50%, meaning we're paying about 7.5 cents per liter in provincial gas tax. There's other taxes that we really don't have a whole lot of wiggle room over, like the federal excise tax. It's been at 10 cents th since the date was implemented, and that's 25 or 30 years ago. Then, of course, there is the carbon tax. The provincial government has said quite clearly that they are not in support of upping the carbon tax at this moment in time. And that's the right thing to say and the right thing to do because it's simply not the right time. I get it. There is a plan and a process in place, and the federal government seems to be hell-bent for leather to move on as planned. But it's important to know that most Canadians don't think it's the right time. You know, somewhere in the offing, even though some people are forecasting recession and what have you, like it's hard to know who has what crystal ball available, 
But I think on top of the carbon tax implication on gasoline, diesel, and otherwise, you know, furnace oil up again, 9.7 cents. We have to, have to, have to be able to negotiate a break and continue our exemption on carbon tax being applied to home heating fuel. We just, you know, between people who are struggling, seniors, different parts of the rural par parts of the province, it's just not going to work at this moment in time. And then, you know, I know the Prime Minister made an appearance yesterday talking about they got your back. I mean, some of these press conferences are getting a little bit stale. And it wasn't the introduction of anything new. It was just reiterating what has been put forward as an inflation control package for Canadians. Notably, for the 11 million Canadians who are eligible for the GST, the doubling for six months, and you've heard me give out the numbers several times. It wasn't on your October check. It's coming sometime in the future, before Christmas, we're told. Then the Canada housing benefit of one-time $500 for people who are low-income renters. And then, of course, the dental care plan, which will be beneficial to many, but it doesn't have an impact in this province because we already have that coverage in place. But if you want to tackle it and take it on, all those angles are absolutely available to you today. All right, talking about money. Sometimes you can do everything possible to try to figure out exactly what's going on, to sift through the hyperbole and the rhetoric and sometimes the nonsense to try to figure out exactly where dollar amounts land in reality and what happens and what should have been done. This one is pertaining to the travel application arrive can. Now, people were up in arms even that it was a thing. And of course it's become optional as of October the 1st. I will ask a couple of questions on that front. Will you still continue to use it? And if not, why not? I'm still a little bit confused about how people think it's such an invasion of your privacy when every single thing asked on this particular application is already known to government. I mean, there's nothing new. You don't think that when your passport declarations are made at the border upon re-entry that they don't know where you went, how long you've been away, and anything you declared upon your return? I mean, I'm just not really sure about how controversial it is in the first place. But the news story is about how much it costs. So you can read that the government and other outlets and other media outlets have said the number is around $29 million. It's also reported that it's upwards of $54 million. And that a Toronto-based tech company in the recent past took it upon themselves to what they call clone the application, and they said they did it in less than 48 hours for the number of $1 million or less. So the implication now is that the government overspent, and maybe to some of their crony donors, a huge whopping sum. If it's actually cost a million and they paid $54 million, then that's simply atrocious. But is that really what happened? And you can help me if you have any more information about it than I do, and especially if you're in the tech business and can help me understand the difference between starting from scratch to build an application versus cloning something with all the back-end work done and all the redundancies covered, even though it was glitchy and there was problems with it, absolutely true. But what's the reality here? Did it include also some infrastructure in airports? Did it? I think it did because I used it and went through it, and it was different than the last time I went through that particular airport. So where is the honest truth in all of this stuff? Isn't that becoming so difficult to achieve, is to find out exactly what's going on? It's really unfortunate that we get muddied and bedazzled by such variance of report. Is it $29 million? Is it $54 million? Is there a difference? And there is, between cloning an app versus starting it from scratch. But the Arrive Can was way up on the list of issues of controversial nature 
in certain corners of the country. And now, of course, it is optional. But, like, I don't really feel like filling out the paperwork. You know, it took me. I know it's not easy for everybody. There were lots of complications. Even if you say not everyone has a smartphone. And for some who might not be tech savvy, even though sometimes I think we exaggerate the tech savvy because this isn't trying to operate Excel. <laughs> this is a much different application. But if you want to talk about it, if, if you know any more about it than I do, please do. Also, this story here, I'm trying my level best to figure out what the heck is going on. It's the implication that there are Chinese police officers and officers operating in this country dealing with matters of Chinese expats as they live, work, and try to thrive in Canada. When did it start? What's actually going on? Do you know? I've read so much about it that I'm now mind-boggled, and I'm not so sure I've figured it out. First or last? It's easy enough if you are full-throated in opposition to the current government. And fair enough, good for you. Don't care. It doesn't bother me who you support necessarily. But what's actually happening here? And what instigated the ability for the Chinese to operate in this country? We've seen all kinds of stories regarding the Chinese, and it's a big part of life, unfortunately, these days, is to understand the implications of Chinese soft and hard power globally, including inside the country. So the story about the Chinese police, I don't know. You want to take it on? You can help me out. Do me a favor. This one, a couple more federal notes, then we'll move off back inside our provincial borders and boundaries. Beginning today is the public inquiry, which was mandated by law, into the fact that on February 14th, the government of Canada, the Liberal government of Canada, for the first time in its history, invoked the Emergency Measures Act. So there had to, this inquiry had to happen. And there's going to be a lot learned and gleaned. The lengthy list of those set to testify is pretty extensive, I have to say. Of course, the notable ministers of the Crown, that have to appear, and that includes the Prime Minister. There will be some protest organizers, members of law enforcement, provincially, municipally, and federally, that are set to testify. The trick here will be it cannot be the case that the government does what it can to shield Canadians from every piece of documentation to understand how, why, who said what, who understood what, leading up to the invocation of the Emergency Measures Act. You know, it gave them extensive powers to rid the streets of the protesters. There was a couple of handfuls of bank accounts that were frozen, which of course is a real bone of contention for many, whether or not it was necessary, whether or not it was requested. But it also has to include everything regarding the protesters. Of course, some people are quick to gloss it over and say, oh yeah, it's so the sedition involved with bouncy castles and hot tubs. Let's be honest, it was bigger than that. It was, there was more to it than that. I mean, you might not want to hear it, you might not want to believe it, but we know it to be true. So even if we talk about the origin opposed to vaccine mandates, all right, there was also a component that people are quick to forget and quick to gloss over and quick to just say it's not, it wasn't a real thing. But part of this was also about, you know, removing a duly elected government. And they talk about freedom and democracy and what have you, but that happened. It happened. It was followed up with this email bombardment at the Governor General's office about her ability, Mary Simon's ability, to dissolve government because... Canadian citizens hit her with a bunch of emails. So it's important. Yes, we need to know exactly what went in inside of government for the Emergency Measures Act. It's too important to not have a full understanding of what the government was doing and how they arrived at that decision. But yes, we have to know the other side of it as well. And some of the notable protesters are scheduled to testify, and we'll see what it brings. But the final report won't be in the hands of government until sometime next February. But that particular inquiry... 
begins today. And as mentioned, we will indeed bring it back inside the boundaries of the province. So there looks like there's a pretty big hurdle in place for the sell-off of the St. Lawrence floor spire mine. There was a successful bidder selected by Grant Thornton to see if we can get through the courts and for a final approval of the sale. And I know it's never as simple as picking a successful bidder and all of a sudden that's the end of the story. It Generally speaking, never is. So they've gone through the courts and there is a couple of major hurdles. One key component is that the preferred bidder only paid a portion of the deposit that was required. And of course, that and that alone would derail this particular transaction. It's a big deal. The St. Lawrence Floor Spire Mine is one of the largest, if not the largest, employer in the region. There'll be over 200 people when they get up and at them. There's about $95 million in outstanding loans that are unsecured, including $17 million that the Floor Spire Mine owes the province, the provincial government. We also cost-shared some of the monies inside of $6.5 million to keep it in warm idle as there was the effort to find the next owner-operator of the mine. The product is in high demand. It's valuable. I know there's infrastructure deficits out there, and I know that there's an unsecured loan that has to be picked up, or loans that have to be picked up. But hopefully, as they enter into from warm idle to winterization, that will have very few people employed. And if you can have two, 250 people employed there, there's a wealth of difference between a handful in winterization mode and the full sell-off and full operations and investment in. Because if you see some of the photographs from the area, whether it be their loading, unloading dock, it's kind of like a, a barge tied on by Danny's twine. There's just got to be better because the product is absolutely in demand. But that's a setback. I don't think it's the end of the story, but it is a setback for that particular region. All right, bouncing around. So we know there has been a, an, an auction of Muskrat Falls assets, trucks and dump trucks and the like. So there's an outfit called Richie's, and they are one of the world leaders in this type of work. You know, the issue here is not eventually who sold it, but it's how we arrived at that decision. So the, here's some of the quotes here. Richie's, da-da-da-da-da is the world's largest industrial auctioneer and one of the world's largest sellers of used equipment for the construction, transportation, energy, and other industries. And that's true. There are some 4,000 bids from 40 different countries. High-priced items like a Mack pump truck went for $675,000. A bunch of pickup trucks and shipping containers were sold off. And Richie's are well-established, and they're a national brand. They're a publicly traded auction house. They're out in British Columbia, I think in Burnaby, possibly. The comment comes from some local auction houses is that why weren't we given a crack? Now, the end winner may have very likely have been Richie's, but here's the problem. If we don't have an RFP and there's a predetermined successful bidder, in this case Richie's, who didn't have to bid at all, we contacted them, said he into it, of course they said yes. There might indeed have been an opportunity for Hydro to save money with the local operator, but the summary problem is that we just can't allow for the predetermination of who is the best entity. What happens if there had to been some sort of manufactured, negotiated partnership between Richie's and a local? Would have seen the wealth spread around a little bit. So I get it. Richie's probably was going to win this particular thing. But when we ha allow the opportunity for no requirement of an RFP, then who gets to set the standard for when we don't or we do? Right? Public procurement is important. We're painfully aware. We've learned lessons the absolute most difficult way possible. But do you want to take it on? We can do it. How are we doing on the phone, Dave? I believe on a good note here, uh, a positive note. 
Are you looking for a good time? Everybody's looking for a little break and a night out, a bit of fun. And I had that type of night last night at Landwash Brewery. I hadn't been there. It's on Commonwealth Avenue, Mount Pearl. It's lovely. Terrific spot. And I went out there. I was invited to go to uh, Trivia Night. And so it was a fundraiser. 100% of the proceeds go to the Jacob Potterson Memorial Foundation. They do tremendous work in the area of youth and young adult mental health care. So 18 to 35. They've been extraordinarily busy. It's too bad we need them, but we're so pleased that they're there. So I can help you register a team. They had a full slate of, I think, eight teams last night, and it was a lot of fun. And the folks have put it together, so whether it be Christy Allen, because I tell you what, it looked like it was seamless, but there's a lot of work that goes into it. Her friend Jillian or Jen O'Quinn or whoever else, bravo, it's a lot of fun. And if you're looking for a night out and a tasty pint and to tickle your brain, Land wash on a Wednesday night. I'll help you register your team if you're so inclined. We're on Twitter. We're VOCM Open Line. Follow us there. Email address is openline at VOCM.com. When we come back, let's have a great show. That only happens when we're speaking with you. Do not go away. Well, welcome back to the show. A couple of days ago, October 11th, was World Teachers Day. And there's a group of the Council of Atlantic Provinces and Territory Teachers Organizations of Newfoundland, Labrador, Nova Scotia, New Brunswick, PEI, and Nunavut. They got together collaboratively to write a letter talking about shortages in the educational field. Joining us online number four is the president of the NLTA, that's Trent Langdon, and good morning, Trent, you're on the air. Hey, Patty, good morning. Good morning to you. Uh, look, we've talked about these issues in the past, but how did it come to pass, considering that it's a provincial matter for the most part, how did it come to pass that the, all of these different entities joined forces to write this letter in collaboration? Yeah, well, you know, as we've said before in previous uh, interviews, Patty, this this is a, a national issue. Um, the the shortages, the, the the strain on the system, the the lack of resources. Uh, this group, Capto, which you referenced, we, we meet uh, three times a year anyway. That and it was a primary focus for us, the, the challenges that we're facing. So it was the time felt right for us to do a a joint release. Uh, it's getting a fair bit of airplay, uh, just not through yourself, but through other uh, provinces as well. Something more needs to be done, and that's that's the angle here. Action needs to be taken to fix this problem it may be 10 years before we start seeing or actually reaping the benefits of that but action needs to be taken now to deal with the shortages and with the, the stress on the system and as i mentioned you know people think about education as a provincial jurisdiction so who was the letter addressed to it is addressed to any anybody who wants to listen. You know, the, we, we very much feel, uh, and I'm, I'm certainly not going to speak for CAPTO, uh, uh, but in terms of our association, we, we very much obviously feel that the, the province has a significant role to play in, in making sure the proper monies are in place uh, and the proper leadership is there. Uh, there also is an angle nationally, and, uh, and I really do believe the national government needs, or the federal government needs to take more of a role in, in advocacy around education issues. And even though they don't want to tread too uh, heavily into the provincial realm, uh, there is a role here because this this is this is our, our children. Uh, this is a livelihood uh, for our teachers that is giving, getting increasingly difficult. Uh, I'm very worried as to where the, where the uh, where this profession is headed, given the strain that is currently on the system. I, I would imagine, and I think for myself, federal federal leadership is required on education and healthcare. As much as we've left that to the provinces, because now what we've found is that we've created a competitive atmosphere. It's mm -hmm. us against them, and that's never the way it can or should be when we talk about critically important professionals like healthcare workers and or teachers, of course. So you say you're worried about where we're headed. Is the worry in that people will leave the profession, like we've seen many, say, for instance, as paramedics or registered nurses? So what's your worry specifically? Yeah, absolutely. So we're seeing that already. People are deciding to throw it all down because it's, it's 
so unpredictable right now. Uh, a significant issue we have currently in this province is is a new uh, automated call-in system for our uh, for our teachers called SmartFind. Um, the unpredictability of that is it's it, it's not working well, not working at all. Actually, there's there's certain things that we're seeing that have some benefits, uh, but the unpredictability of it, the uh, our part-time teachers uh, are not being uh, topped up, which is a collective agreement issue for us. Um, and uh, even though the the district has responded saying yes, okay, that's that's something we're going to fix. But just some of the other things, the flexibility of schools to be able to fill uh, positions uh, last minute, that's worrisome. Uh, the, the consistency, that can't be attained. Uh, I'll give an example. Uh, uh, speaking with a teacher just yesterday who uh, there was five days coming up where a teacher was going to be out and there was five different substitute teachers in in that class uh, for that week or uh, for the upcoming week sorry and uh, you know those five days when you're dealing specifically with any student but imagine throwing students in there that may have uh, specific learning needs uh, and even younger children to have that inconsistency is, is very difficult and uh, so we want to see more of a balance within that system uh, where yeah absolutely if it's if it's reducing workload for administrators, great in terms of, you know, the mass callings. But in this province, we need consistency and we need the ability to uh, back on the, uh, in the on the plates of administrators to, to really uh, uh, pers- bring people into their building who are, are able to service the kids appropriately. Yeah, I mean, I've seen it with my own two eyes, the long mornings of going through the call list from the island in my kitchen. Yeah, and so yeah, that yeah. has to be dealt with. You know, I guess tweaks like... If it's three days or more, only one sub gets called. Things like that can probably do it. But the argument being made prior to this, and I don't know if it works because I'm not, I'm not a teacher, but if a school got comfortable with the teacher, they were their go-to. Whether it be yeah. for grade four yeah. science or grade six math, the same teacher because they knew that person, they had a relationship. But what that also meant was teachers that they did not know were never even considered. So some teachers got a lot of sub work. Some teachers didn't get very much at all. Mm-hmm. So that unlevel playing field, is there a suggestion, uh, suggestion amongst the ranks about how it can be done better? I mean, I think an easy tweak is three days or more, one teacher gets the gig. I get that, right. and that's beneficial right. to right. the student. Right. But we've got to spread the wealth around for the sub-teacher as well. Uh, agreed, and, and that, that balance needs to be there. Right now, it just can't be a free-for-all. So there has to be some ability within the system to create some balance and, and, and to give some flexibility to the administrator to do what's right for their building. I fully support uh, our newer substitute teachers getting opportunities to substitute teach because it, it's not an easy battle. Uh, but w- when we have people that have, have been subbing for a long time now and, and they're finding that they're only getting bits and pieces here and there, that, that's very difficult. And this, these are the livelihoods we're talking about uh, that are, are um, uh, we're going to lose or these are people that are in the system you, you mentioned earlier that are, de- are deciding to leave and with the substitute teacher shortage in the province and a, an overall shortage of teachers in, in, in the province as, as a whole uh, that, that's worrisome so those are the daily things that impact morale you, you know the technical piece of this smartphone system is that you may have an offer uh, sent to you and then all of a sudden it's rescinded and you don't know why and you may have turned down other you know you, so there's little tweaks like that that need to be fixed but it's definitely not working well at this point. I think inside of every walk of life, any profession, there's a you know work-life balance issue that needs to be addressed and understood, and there's Great. also mental health supports that need to be understood. Uh, this is just a vague question. Are there any mental health-focused PD days? I know you don't call them PD days anymore, but those yep. days when teachers get additional training and up their skills in one form or another, are any of those uh, set aside for mental health? Well, uh, schools do have a choice, uh, or the teachers within their building is based on, on uh, the collective agreement to, to have a, a choice of one day for themselves. The rest may be uh, uh, other things that need to happen in the school to keep things moving. So generally, we often see that one day of choice that a, a staff may have is mental health related, whether it's it's to bring in uh, wellness uh, coordinators, whether it's to bring in a, a day of, 
of meditation, that type of thing. Uh, it, it really is a focus right now, and, and the school district has given opportunities as well, so you know, we're, we'll give a shout-out for that. But um, it, it, we're seeing a much more greater emphasis on, on opportunities for teachers to, to avail of mental health supports, for sure. Even though twofold questions are frowned upon in my gig, I'm doing it anyway. So <laughs> absenteeism. Yeah. Uh, I've seen some reports from different parents who are reaching out to their child's school to get absenteeism updates. The average that I'm getting back is around 30%, which approaches that number where we may indeed see some further measures taking place. I don't know what they might include, but 30% is way above the normal average of students absent. So mm-hmm. what are you hearing? And add to it the twofold portion is, how about teacher absenteeism? Yeah, okay, so to do the uh, the first part with the students, uh, absenteeism has been an issue in this province for years. This is nothing new. It's not post-COVID. It's, it's not created by COVID. As a guidance counselor myself, it, that was a, a common day for me to deal with students who weren't attending school. Um, so efforts are being made to, to bring them back. Uh, we currently have past teachers, they're called, uh, Positive Actions for Student Success, I think it stands for, uh, where they work specifically with students that may be struggling in various capacities, but generally are those students who aren't attending. So efforts are being made and we've seen great success and our past teachers have been a great addition uh, to the system. Uh, but the absenteeism piece, uh, uh, we often hear it's it's not the mandate of child protection in other areas if, if a child is is, uh, is truant. Um, uh, so it's that's the worrisome part is that it falls on the on the on the shoulders of schools to to try and find out why a child is not being um uh not attending school and at the same time uh how do you fix it so that's that's a heavy piece but absolutely absolutely absenteeism is high uh covid is has worsened that in many many regards uh to jump to the teacher piece uh, you know, in terms of absenteeism, there there has been obviously throughout COVID uh, times where teachers haven't been able to attend uh, based on symptomology and so on. Uh, overall, we 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 do what we can to support our teachers, and if they do need to be out on occasion, uh, we 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 do support that. But but that's the nature of any job. If you need to be away, we need to have a reliable workforce to support uh, filling in those gaps, and that's where our substitute teachers come in. And right now, there there is a shortage in many parts. But again, back to the smart find piece, if that if that smart find system is not uh, enabling our principals to really put people into the classrooms when it needs to happen and there's a lot of glitches and gaps that's just just adding to the problem last one and i'll let you go i've been trying to talk about this uh, a lot because i think it's really important and it's been overlooked by far too many is the whole issue regarding learning loss the academic research on this is patently clear it's real there hasn't been a whole lot of focus on it around here as far as i can tell we had a high school symposium about learning loss and accommodations for curriculum that has not necessarily been rejigged grade to grade to understand the learning loss concept. Can you give me an idea of how we're dealing with it in K-12? Because if I read stories, for instance, from other provinces where they took a full summer to rejig the curriculum to reflect the absolutely real learning loss issue. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, there have been discussions. Uh, we've been part of that with, with government and with the school districts and with other key stakeholders. Memorial University plays a role in it. Obviously, we have kids leaving uh, high school. Trans- so transition times are key right now, and that three years of, of learning loss uh, is a focus. To be honest with you, Patty, there's so many operational needs right now in our system uh, that the learning loss piece is, is our teachers are doing what they can with what they have, but the, the, the operational pieces are, are making it very difficult to, to really dig into some of those learning loss issues, and uh, and that's the heavy piece about it. Um, you know, like, again, not, not to uh, to belabor it, but the smart find thing, um, the need for a recruitment and, and retention strategy in this province there needs to be action on that right away, and 
another piece I just want to mention is payroll. We there's there's major issues in this province where teachers aren't getting paid, not getting paid on time, and there's major delays. This is the livelihood of these people. So you can see why morale may not be where it needs to be. Fair enough. And when that becomes reality in my house, you'll hear about it. Absolutely so. Trent, I appreciate your time as usual. Thank you. Thanks, Patty. Appreciate take, it. Take care. Bye-bye. Right. Trent Langdon is the president of the NLTA. Okay, we're going to take a break, but when we come back, we got a story about moose hunting. Don't go away. Weekdays on VOCM. It's Open Line with your host, Patty Daly. Join the conversation each morning from 9 a.m. to noon on your VOCM. We get people talking. Welcome back. Let's go to line number two. Good morning, caller. You're on the air. Hello. Good morning. Good morning, sir. How are you? Great today. You? Oh, not too bad. No, I just uh, called here about a moose hunting incident here last week. Uh, we were up the Great Northern Plains of moose hunting. We go up pretty much every year. There's the six or eight of us go up there. And uh, Yeah, I can't really hear you. So give me a side shuffle of one stride, one way or the other, see if we can get a clearer connection. Okay. Uh, yeah, you hear me better now? Not too bad. Okay. Yeah, I was up Great Northern Plains, like I said, moose hunting there. We got one, and then we got the second one. We had another one there for the Lions Club. I got mine, and then we tried to hunt for the Lions Club one. Anyways, uh, I spend about fourteen to fifteen hundred dollars every year <clears throat> up the Northern Plains of moose hunting, and uh, I had a flat tire on my truck, so I went out and get it fixed. When I come back, somebody had the cord cut off my generator, so. Little did this person know that we had trail cams up around our uh, our campers. So we got their vehicle. We got them walking down to our campers on trail cams. Uh, Patty, I don't I don't think it's a very good thing. Uh, just because there's a hunting camp in that area, hunting lodge, I, I don't I don't disagree with them. No, uh, you know. But I take my holidays and I go up moose hunting. I enjoy moose hunting and. Uh, you know, for this for this kind of thing to go on, what's going to go on after? You know what I mean? Sure. But just maybe reiterate, what's the concern with the lodge and you as just traveling hunters? Well, apparently uh, they, they don't like it because the uh, mail corps put the trail across and now I got it opened up for, for other Newfoundlanders to hunt as well. And uh, the people that got those lodges up there and, and people that related to those people that got the lodges up there and got a few cabins in that area, <laughs> excuse me, uh, they don't like anybody else in here. They might not like it, but, you know, if... Okay, so just because they don't like it doesn't mean you can't hunt, though, right? They could be mad until that's, the cows come home. That's right, but I mean, like, do damage to my generator, you know what I mean? Like, okay, uh, there's no need of it. Why cut the cord on my generator? I needed my generator for my trailer. Uh, like I said, one little gas station up there, I spend $500 in gas in one little gas station. That's just me. Right? That's not counting the other people that's up there with me. Uh, there was another fellow there from St. John's area. He stayed in the cottage that they had there. He bought gas at the ga- same gas station. He was up there for a full week, didn't get a moose. He had to leave and drive back to St. John's. You know what I mean? I suppose the time has come for a trail camera to see who's doing that type of malicious damage to generators or anything else. And then it doesn't become an outfitter's issue. It doesn't become a moose license issue. It becomes a police matter. Yeah, I know, but I mean, like, uh, you know, but I, I just said, like, I just called in, and I hope the person that's, uh, that did this is listening, you know, uh, because there's no need of it. I mean, uh, to me, the way I understood it, the moose was put on Newfoundland on for the hunt, for Newfoundlanders to hunt. Yep. Uh, 
they, they opened up the hunt. Why can't I go where I fly for a license? No big deal. I mean, I'm spending, like I said, I spent $1,400 this year. Last year, last year I spent uh, 1800 before I got my moose. You know, so, like, uh, I just like hunting, and, and I, I enjoy it. But uh, because the people like this that don't want somebody from different parts of the island uh, coming up in that area hunting, uh, what's going to happen? Oh, I don't, I don't want to hunt no more because I'm afraid an incident is going to take place that in, in the country at night, you know what I mean? I do know what you mean, and too bad about them, because sometimes you don't really have the final say about what area you get to hunt in anyway, for starters. No, no I mean, like, if I want to apply for, for, for Labrador, say, and, and, and spend the money myself to go to Labrador to hunt, if I don't get a moose, I don't get a moose. I got my money gone, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. So I, I'm still putting money into those two little small towns that's up there. Like, there's only a little gas bar here. It's a beautiful little spot. People's friendly during the gas fire and so on. And and uh, it's only a couple of, uh, like the old guy said, it's only one bad apple spawns the barrel. You know what I mean? I do. And, and yeah. What's happening? And what's going to happen? What's going to happen uh, sooner or later? You're going to have a consultation with somebody in the woods, and and it's going to be too late to get the RCMP in there or whatever. Because like we were in 30, 35 kilometers from from a main road. Uh, in in, uh, in on a woods road and then on the nail core trail. Uh, we had our campers parked there, and I didn't think there was anything wrong with it. There's no garbage left around. There's no nothing left around. Uh, I can see it if we were leaving garbage around, and then you see the same campers back in the same spot the next year or the year after or whatever, you know? And it's really frustrating. Like uh, like I said, I got it on trail camp, but I don't want to deal with the RCP. I don't want nothing to do with that stuff. But I just got, we just put a trail cam up because there was beers up around there. We wanted to see if they were coming back, right? Okay. Uh, uh, you know, but I got them on trail cam. I got their vehicle. I got them walking to my camper. I got them cutting the cord on my generator. There's, there was no need of it. And I, I didn't do nothing to nobody. I helped anybody. That's the way I was re- re- reared up to don't do anybody any hurt. Always help them if you can, you know? And it's just so childish to do what they did anyway. And, you know, I'll just throw this into it. Look, outfitters are part of the economy. They are. But when there was a reduction in the number of boost licenses, licenses a couple of years ago, it wasn't for outfitters. Locals lost some licenses. The outfitters kept their exact tally. So they've got to play exactly. along here because everyone who gets a license should be able to hunt without worrying about their property. Exactly. And that's the same thing. Like, we had an incident there last year. Uh, nobody did mention it. Uh, it was said to a guy from, from, uh, from the Grand Falls area, uh, he said, this guy had a cottage, uh, got a small cabin there on the lake there. He said, what, where are you from? He said, from Grand Falls. Oh, he said, I sooner see the crabs up here than see the lake of you up here. You know, so, I mean, like, they're making it hard for themselves. You know what I mean? I do. I'm yeah. sorry that it happened to you. I'm glad you got your own moose. I can't remember what you said. Did you get your charity moose as well? No, we did. No, didn't I had to come back. I had to come back home to go to work. Okay, very good. I appreciate you telling us about it. And for folks out there who might be irritated that a townie or someone from Badger or whoever is hunting where you're hunting, it's just kind of too bad about you. People have to share the woods. People have to share the bounty. And if you got a license, you should be able to go get your moose, do it safely. And you mentioned confrontation. This confrontation, 35 kilometers in off the main road, becomes even more potentially dangerous when everyone's got a weapon. Exactly, exactly. And, and I mean, like, I, I'm not that type of person. Like, I got to help anybody out. You know, like last year we were up there, me and my son was up there, and uh, we were up there hunting, and those two old gentlemen, one, I, I must say, uh, one guy, his son owns the lodge in, in, in uh, Area 3, uh, they had a flat tire, didn't know they had a flat tire, they were driving up the woods road. Me and my son changed the tire for them because they were older gentlemen. 
we could have said, we could have said, the hell with you, let you drive on a flat tire you want and ruin the rim or beat the bottom out of your car. You know what I mean? But yes, I do. We, when we seen it, we stopped them and told them. And like I said, me and my son helped them change. We changed the tire for them because you're older gentlemen, you know. And 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 then you got to go up and feel and 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 deal with those kind of people. Uh, what, like I said, like, and like you said, yeah, uh, you're you're 35, 40 kilometers in over a wood road, and some guys are in more than that because, like, I had area too. I never had nothing to do with the honey lodge inside, you know. And, and we we stay there. We stay there. We got we get a license. Sometimes we fly for area three, so we stay there in area two, and we drive in and go in area three, which is only just across the bridge that we got across. Then you're in area three. So what's wrong with that idea? Uh, I got to travel out every second day and get gas for my vehicle. Or if I use my side by side, I got to come out and get gas for my side by side. So, like I said, I I, I spent five hundred dollars at one little gas station up there. You know. I appreciate the time and the concern. Sounds totally legit to me. Uh, thanks for this this morning. Stay in touch. I will. And if any other incident takes place, I will I will contact you again, sir. Let's do it. Okay. Thanks. Okay. All the best. Bye bye. Yes, uh, will I get Herbert here, Dave? Is that what we're saying? Okay, let's go to line number one. we got a bouquet to be flicked around. Herbert, you're on the air. Good morning, Petty. Morning, sir. How are you doing? Top shelf today. How are you doing? No, uh, good. I'm just calling to congratulate the councillors and the mayors and the committee. And the time of Twomaget knew it on for the great job they've done to get Craft Hockeyville back in Twomaget. It, look, I think it's brilliant. Uh, it was, of course, they won it a couple of years ago. They couldn't play the game. They were at the George Hawkins, had to go up to Gander with the steal. But I know there's big money coming to town, like $250,000. And you don't just flip a switch and win that Kraft Hockeyville. So I know the former mayor was part of it, and the current mayor I spoke with uh, just last week or the week before. But bravo on everyone involved. Hopefully the rink is, gets a nice spit shine now with all that money. Oh, yeah. I'm ta- talking about everybody excited at the time we had in Gander. Last Thursday night, it was electrifying. But I'll, I'll probably never see another NHL game. But I finally got to see the Montreal Canadiens, the team I cheer for. And there was a lot of fans in the billing. So put it all together. For me, everything went good. I'm glad to hear it, Herbert. How do you think Montreal's going to look this year? I know they had a good start last night and beat the Leafs, oh. but they got a rough year ahead, I think. Oh, man, after last night, I slipped good. <laughs> one, <laughs> one game at a time. Uh, no, I said the team was probably may make playoffs. I'm not sure. Yeah, I think that'd be some achievement if they do. But I'm really pleased that you enjoyed the game and finally got to see your favorite team. It's different than on TV, isn't it? I mean, there's not a oh. second to spare out there with the puck. Oh man, I said those guys are big. That puck can move fast. Yeah, uh, f- sorry. Go ahead. Oh no, I said a lot of difference from what we're we're watching in town. But there's good hockey teams in town. But I guess they're up to the big leagues. Yeah, the first thing I ever noticed when I saw the pros is on TV, it looks like you got a second to think. You know, you got a second to do something with the puck, but when you go to the rink and watch it live, no, sir. None. Oh, my, oh my God. It was, fast. it was fast last Thursday night when I seen it. The first game where I seen I seen the junior Maple Leafs playing St. John's there one time, but yeah. nothing compared to that. No, it's a thrill, that's for sure. It's been a while since I've seen an NHL game, but I look forward to seeing another one. It's fine to watch it from the bunk uh, on TV, but something else to be right there live. I know. Hey, when it's in Gander, my seat, you're almost holding on to your seat. But when I'm watching out your air, sometimes it's probably out on the floor. <laughs> it's, really, it's really exciting. Just all the kids and all the fans, there are probably people there that probably never seen another NHL game. 
and probably the first one they ever seen. So I got to sing a, a big shout out to the town of Tonaget and New Orleans for all that voted and all the work that went into it. I think it's going to be a good job. I'm sure they appreciate the kind words, Herbert. Enjoy the hockey season. Give us a shout anytime. Okay, buddy. Have I'll, a good day. You too. All the best. All the best. Right, yeah. Bye-bye. Yeah, the first time you see a pro game, it is memorable. It really is. Uh, let's take a break. When we come back, we're talking OCD. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number six and say good morning to clinical psychologist, the past president of the Association of Psychologists, Newfoundland and Labrador. That's Dr. Janine Hubbard. Dr. Hubbard, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Welcome back to the show. Well, thanks so much for having me. Always happy to do with these are important conversations. So, last time we spoke, it was about adult ADHD, and I know we had an uber-successful event uh, in town there a couple of weekends ago. Now it's OCD Awareness Week. I'm sure I have a touch of it. Now, I don't even know if that's the clinical way to put it, but what do people need to look out for? I'll just give the folks, I don't mind admitting this. For me, I have a few that just jump out, and every day I can't avoid them. Did I unplug the iron? Did I close the freezer door properly? And did I lock my door? I cannot avoid those. It doesn't trouble me to the point where I'm worried, but boy, I have to attend to that every single time. And you know what? That's a wonderful example and a place to start because um, those are very normal and appropriate worries for all of us to have. And we've all had them. And we've all had the odd time where, you know, you're down the block and you turn around and go back because you're like, I'm sure I did that because that's part of my routine, but I need to check. Big difference, though, between that, because that's, that's just keeping you safe. That's keeping your house uh, safe. That's keeping, it, you know, uh, your family and your loved ones and your possessions safe. Uh, so we all do that. The difference uh, between that and someone with uh, OCD or obsessive compulsive disorder is that even though they know that they've done all those activities, it stays in their mind. They might have to go back and check it. Uh, it could be five times. It could be a dozen times. It could be I get to work and I'm still not sure. So I, I need to see that. It could be you need to videotape having done it. And even still, your brain is going to go, did I really do that this morning? Um, what happens in OCD is, um, because I work with kids, I like to use it's the idea of sticky thoughts or what we know them is. Is, is intrusive thoughts. These are these ideas that come into your mind and uh, usually, sorry, person knows they're irrational, knows that they're, you know, overblown and um, is still not able to get them out of their mind to provide that reassurance to themselves that, no, no, I'm pretty sure I did that. Um, so yes, we all have our little quirks that help get us through the day. Most of the time, it doesn't interfere with life. So that's the big difference of do you go and check it once and then get on with your day? Or are you suddenly late for work every morning because it's taking you half an hour to go through that ritual of checking all of those things? That's kind of one of the biggest um, differences uh, that I'm hoping people come away from this understanding. Yeah, and uh, of course, you know, it can be quite debilitating. I've spoken to people who do indeed have that type of diagnosis with OCD. I can manage mine by saying the iron is unplugged, the iron is unplugged, the iron is unplugged, I turn off the light, I'm done. So how debilitating can it be at its most severe? Well, it absolutely can be debilitating. And again, the reason I like to highlight it when this week comes up is because some of the thoughts that pop into people's brains are either violent, sometimes they're sexual in nature, sometimes they're religious in nature, and sometimes they're just really wild and out there. People are sometimes afraid of expressing them out loud because they're concerned about the judgment that might come from others. Um, I've had a number of parents over the years sort of say, um, you know, I, I, 
for example, it's actually something that can come in the postpartum period. And so we have postpartum mothers having these intrusive thoughts about uh, harming their child, and they're terrified to say anything about it because they're like, you know, they think they know they're not going to hurt their child, but their brain is putting these images and these thoughts in their head, and they're afraid to say anything um, because they're fearful that, well, you know, somebody's going to come and take my child away from me, as opposed to understanding that, um, A, the more you talk about it, the um, less frightening it becomes, and we're able to normalize it, but this is a very treatable condition, Um, but it often um, is really hard for people to kind of come out with it. The other thing that we see, especially in younger kids, is they can't express a specific thought or fear. It's just the, there's this looming kind of dread or the idea that, well, it's just not right. And they can't explain what that means. Um, But there's just this, like I say, kind of this uh, dread or this fear. Um, And I mean, we often get people referred for things like attentional issues. And it's not attentional issues at all. It's the fact that they can't get their minds off of um, either these thoughts that are going through their head or uh, they're taking up huge amounts of time in their day um, engaging in um, kind of rituals and routines to try to reduce that anxiety. I, I always hesitate to ask very clinical questions because I don't know what I'm talking about. But <laughs> do certain other diagnoses fall inside or under the OCD umbrella? For instance, germophobia or hypochondria because once you get sick it's the worry that every single day I'm going to find a new thing wrong with me or the compulsion to wash my hands all day long every day. Do those things fall into the the world of OCD? Oh, those are absolutely really common compulsions. So things like washing and cleaning and fear of germs um, is one of the very common uh, thoughts that come out as well as, as you sort of said, those irrational health fears. Now that can present as a form of OCD and the big difference there uh, from someone who perhaps is, you know, really focused on their health in some unhealthy ways that might reflect, you know, kind of a different disorder is usually the person with OCD knows that these thoughts are irrational. They know that, you know, okay, that mole that I just saw that I know the doctor checked out last week and tested and told me I know it's not cancerous, but my brain won't let go of that thought. Um, that is a very different experience because they, they know that the fears are irrational, but it doesn't stop them from uh, taking up space in their brain, basically. At what age is it typically uh, present? Because, you know, you might have a child, for instance, one of my boys, he had, wanted to line up his dinkies in a certain way. Yep. It was the red Corvette in front of the blue boogie van in front of this and that and the, uh, down the line. And if I moved them for a lark, he put them back in line. But, of course, there was nothing diagnosable about any of that. So what do parents need to know, especially when we're, they're looking at? Because people want to know what is going on with their child so they can help their child. Oh, for sure. And this is a condition that actually typically presents first in kind of middle childhood, sort of 8 to 12, or in kind of that uh, late adolescent, early young adult age. It doesn't usually just develop out of nowhere in, um, you know, in adulthood. So we are dealing with kids who can't quite express it. Um, And listen, I'll use an example of routines and rituals. Bedtime routines are really helpful for all of us. In fact, it's one of the things we preach around good sleep hygiene is, you know, do all the steps. It triggers your mind and your body to know that it's getting ready for sleep. The difference is, um, and it helps you to remember to do all the things you need to do, the big difference is can you ask your child to put on their pajamas and then go brush their teeth versus brushing their teeth versus putting on their pajamas? Um, 
can can you change up that routine a little bit without it causing huge amounts of distress? Um, and really for all of this, like I say, all of these are things that we all have to a certain extent. The difference is the amount of anxiety and distress that comes along um, with, as you said, moving that dinky car or changing things out of order. If it's a, no, I just prefer it this way, but I can live with it. That's one thing. If it's a, I can't think about anything else other than the fact that those cars are not in the right order and I won't be able to go to sleep tonight until I know those cars are in the right order. That's more what you're looking at when you're dealing with OCD. Dr. Harper, can I put you on hold through the news, come back and talk about treatments beyond ch- childhood, you know, jammies and uh, teeth brushing and stuff? Because I know there's other issues that people would be interested in. Can I put you on hold? Absolutely. Okay, let's do exactly that. Dr. Janine Hubbard is on hold. When we come back, we're going to talk about some of the other treatments available that might be of help to some of you listening. Don't go away. Join us for On Target, one hour in which Linda Swain examines topics that mean the most to you. On Target, weekday afternoons at 1 on your VOCM. And let's welcome back Dr. Janine Hubbard to the conversation. Dr. Hubbard, you're back on the air. Hi, Patty. Okay, so let's get into some therapy or some treatment. And I know one thing that's involved here because I have a friend in this realm is that repeated exposure to what drives or triggers the OCD, which comes with some built-in trauma, but how effective is it? It, fortunately, this is one of these conditions that responds incredibly well to a specific type of uh, therapy. Um, it's a form of what we call cognitive behavioral therapy, and the fancy term for it is ex- uh, exposure and uh, response prevention, ERP. Um, what that means essentially is exactly what you said. It's the exposing the person to whatever that uh, thing is that makes them feel uncomfortable because a lot of OCD is, oh, don't do that. Bad things will happen. Oh, don't, you know, you can't, can't do that or something bad will happen. So whether it's, um, for example, uh, a lot of uh, kids talk about magic numbers, like the stereo has to be on 15, not 16 or 14. Like it's, there is a specific number or I have to, in your case, you know, you talk about uh, checking the lock. Well, I have to do that a certain number of times. Maybe it's four, maybe it's eight. Um, And so what you do is get the individual, while having taught them relaxation, coping strategies to help relax the body, you're also teaching them the cognitive skills that say, I can do this, I can get through it. Um, um, I can tolerate the discomfort that I'm feeling while this is happening and the world isn't going to fall apart. Bad things aren't going to happen. doesn't mean it's fun. Uh, it's one of the reasons why um, sometimes people find the therapy challenging because it's not fun to face the things that make you feel really uh, uncomfortable. But once uh, you do it repeatedly, you realize, oh, wait, like the bad things that my brain said were going to happen haven't happened. Um, I can tolerate this. I might never enjoy it, but I can tolerate it. Um, so uh, we do know that actually um, OCD responds incredibly well to cognitive behavioral therapy. In some cases, there may be some anti-anxiety meds required, but we usually recommend doing a trial of uh, therapy first. I used to be able to stand tippy-toed on the ledge of Gonzaga High School and I went up to retrieve a tennis ball. I can't watch heights on TV. It's just amazing how things change as you get older. Is there such a thing as getting out in front of it? You know, trying to control your responses before it comes to cognitive interventions, what have you. So 
What do I do, for instance, to stop dwelling on whether or not I unplug the iron, which I know for well I did? Right. Uh, well, there's a couple of things, because one of the things that's important to know is OCD is a lifelong condition, but it waxes and wanes. I kind of, I describe it, it's a little bit like asthma. You might always have asthma, but you might go six months or a year or a couple of years without a flare-up, or you may be somebody who it impacts on a daily basis. Um, so that's why learning these coping skills are so important. Um, but also what tends to happen with the OCD symptoms is when you address them in one area, um, very sneakily, they suddenly start to appear in another area. So again, it's the being mindful of it and trying to get on top of it when you start to see it sneaking in. Um, so to be able to then try to address it. Uh, that being said, like I say, there's tons of little strategies that can be used, whether it's having um, somebody watch you. Um, I, I'm a big fan, like I say, of using technology. So take a little videotape of yourself or take a photo of it. So you've got the timestamp that says, look, I did this. Um, and like I say, you do that enough times and your brain kind of goes, all right, I trust you. Okay, I can move forward. Um, so there are lots of those little tricks. And like I say, once you've got someone who is dealing with it, sometimes you get caught off guard and sometimes you're able to prevent it. The other pieces, kind of like asthma, there's a lot of lifestyle um, issues and control. So being mindful that it tends to flare up during periods of stress, during periods of illness. Um, I've got a bunch of kids where, you know, if they've gone to camp, Camp or they've gone on sleepovers and they're really overtired, you might expect that the symptoms might uh, flare up a little bit um, and then you kind of get them back down under control. Last one, how common is it for there to be the requirements for pharmaceutical intervention, some like anti-anxiety medication or something? Um, like I say, it, I mean, it varies from person to person, and it is also part of a larger cluster of anxiety disorders. So sometimes people have just the OCD, and they respond really well to treatment. Sometimes if it has been untreated and the level of distress is so high that an individual can't benefit from the therapy, sometimes we use it at the start to kind of get the anxiety levels down low enough that people can learn the strategies, and then we're able to... Uh, take away that medication. Uh, so I don't have good stats for you there. It's kind of, it's really variable on an individual basis, but this is one of the few psychiatric conditions where I can say that the therapy as opposed to the pharmaceutical is um, the treatment of choice uh, for most people, at least as the place to start. We always appreciate your time. Anything else you'd like to add before we say goodbye this morning? No, just I was going to say, because this is one that a lot of people suffer in silence on, if any of this is resonating, um, please reach out and start the conversation. Anxiety Canada and the IOCDF, it's the International OCD um, is it Foundation Federation? I always forget the F. Foundation, IOCDF, are two really great organizations and websites that have loads more material than we could cover this morning. Uh, so please go check it out. Appreciate the time, Dr. Hubbard. Thanks, Patty. Thank you. Bye. Bye-bye. It's Dr. Janine Hubbard, clinical psychologist, of course, past president of the Association of Psychology, Newfoundland and Labrador. Let's get a response to Dr. Hubbard on line number two from Nick. Nick, you're on the air. Hi, Patty. How are you? Great. You? I'm all right. I got ADHD. Okay. The, uh, I just wanted to respond to some of the things. I mean, it's not really a response. It's just uh, I'm wondering what happens when. So I, I, I was diagnosed later in life with ADHD, but had all kinds of other indicators early in life that they point out now that they know about. Maybe they didn't know about them then. I mean, 
uh, you know, other issues surrounding that. I don't really need to, need to get into my story, but what happens, so I've been diagnosed as an adult. I sort of went on with my life, things were good, but then things got bad again. Diagnosed, and ever since, it's just been trouble since I was diagnosed. And it's two years I've been diagnosed, and it's just trouble. So where do you go when you got multiple diagnosis, multiple complex issues, medication's not working, and CBD, CBT or whatever is not working? What do you do? Excellent question. I don't know. But do you have a psychologist that you see on a regular basis? Yes. Uh, everything. I've been to everyone since grade three. I'm almost 40 years old. And it's like everywhere I go, they said, well, what do you want? And I says, well, I don't know. And it's like the more and more I look at it, the more and more I just get diagnosed with more things, and then it just becomes more complicated. And the issue in the end, like I'm shaking here, just calling here, asking for help. I was in with my counselor yesterday, and I was just like, I don't know what to do. I don't care anymore. And what do they say in response to that? Well, what, <laughs> well, what, well, what do you want? I don't know. It's like it's like it's like all the so I got OCD, ADHD, and they says anxiety, and it's all it's all together, right? So if if I get and and as doctor just said, things are connected. Um, I also have a learning disability that I was diagnosed with that as a child and had a lot of issues around it, and all this stuff comes together. So the scenario is now I work my OCD and ADHD is a big issue when it comes to getting my work done and my learning disability also just all together it doesn't help and I can't work because I don't know I guess I got ADHD I got you know I got I just I'm being penalized in a system that says that there's no stigma around this but ever since I tried to look into it it just gets worse now I want to get out and I can't I wish I knew uh, knew what to say beyond what your counselor oh, or your psychologist would say. I'm not sitting here sad or nothing like that listening nope, to your show. No, no problem. I, I listen to Miss Hubbard on the news all the time. She's got great stuff. I just like it. Just seems like I'm living in this world where, <clears throat> even as a professional myself, like I went and got educated, and when I got diagnosed, they told me, "Wow, like you did great with learning disability and lifelong issues of you know distracting and ADHD, OCD, stuff like that." You've done great. But we got diagnosed, and now they're like, well, you can't work because now we found out that you got a diagnosis or something. Yes. Like, I just feel like a liability in society. It's a shame to hear that you feel that way, but I know it's based in reality because that's what happens so far, so often, isn't it? Yeah, gratitude. Like, there's so many people, Patty, that call in, like, I can't get a doctor, I can't get an assessment. I got multiple assessments. And it's just, it all says the same, and it's like nobody will listen to it. That's what I don't get. Like what Dr. Hubbard says, what everyone, everyone's perception of ADHD is the same. Everyone's perception of mental health is the same. But the stigma's not gone. People talk about there's no stigma. Oh, I think there is. I think, unfortunately, there remains a stigma, which is why we really do make a concerted effort to talk about it as much as we can so that people feel like it's a comfortable spot, whether it be here or with their friends or their family, to talk about it because... I don't know how many times we'll say it, and I'm not talking at you, I'm just talking in general terms, is if you broke your leg, you wouldn't be embarrassed about it. If you have a diagnosis of adult ADHD, nor should you be embarrassed about that. There's hopefully ways to get the help or the treatment or the support you need, and you shouldn't be ostracized or alienated because of your diagnosis, because these are widespread becoming more and more common as we start to understand these issues more and more. So I hope and 
I hope you find a way to not feel like you're alienated and that well, like, you Peggy, don't know I where else to turn. That, like, no, I have ADHD. The whole, like, like, nobody's surprised. I tell my friends and family I'm not ashamed of it. No, I know. You're, you're saying it out loud. I'm freaking trouble, but it is what it is. Um, it's always been there, but, like, it's like everybody else. And I, all mental health is like everyone else wants to, in society wants to point out what everyone's doing wrong. And if you got a mental health disorder and you're a part of this society and you're sitting there and, and, and the way I have, I've observed this world to this point is with everyone's negative crap and the way they pr- produce that negative crap is different to me. I take it away. I think about it. I judge myself about it. I have anxiety about it. This whole ego and stuff in society is what's ruining everything. I don't got an iPhone. I don't got, uh, you know, I don't got any more electronics. I don't use none of that stuff. I goes out in the backyard. I self-help all that perfect but this whole like it's just like everyone else can't get over mental health i'm over it i'm good i'm medicated it's not working i got to keep working on it whatever fine but nobody else like i'm I'm the one that can't work i'm the one that can't pay my bills i'm not poor you know anyone that recognizes my voice know where i live i got a nice house up in southland i'm not complaining that i'm hungry this is why I don't want to complain about it. I feel bad about people getting off planes from other countries, and I care about people that are sad and don't have food. You know? I'm going to have work for 10 months. Do you foresee a path back to the workplace? Oh, yeah, they're working with me and all that. But, okay. you know, it's just slow. <laughs> it's just slow. I'm so frustrated. I, just, I need someone to not talk to, but, like, is there any, like... I have gone to the extreme. Is there anyone I should talk to out there that was listening to Miss Hubbard or whatever that got something for me to tell me something different? Well, I don't know if we're going to be able to put you on to someone to tell you something different, but I do know of organizations that are there 24-7 that can be a go-to when you find yourself frustrated or alienated or whatever the right word is. I don't know. I can't characterize your emotions for you. But I know places where, you know, at the touch of a phone, you can speak to somebody and maybe get some helpful advice for that day based on how you're feeling. And I can, I'm happy to share some numbers with you if you're at all interested in them. What numbers? Well, this one I put people onto all the time, and I'll tell you, Nick, I get positive reviews from this organization called Wellness Together. It's 24-7, and they're there, and you'll speak with someone. You're not leaving someone a message. They're there. They will take your call, take your text message, and people have great success with it. So, you know, and you don't have to be in a moment of an absolute crisis. It can be just something that's a go-to if you feel one way or the other in the middle of the day out in the backyard, and I can give you the number. I'm looking it up now. It's fine. I got it. The, uh... I'll give them a call. That's good. It's, it's good. To, there's so many resources out there. Like, people come to me all the time, and it's like people want to talk to me about because I'm sort of open about it. I've been open about it for a long time. Sometimes I feel like people want to say, like, well, what did you do? How did you go through it? Up to this point, like, I felt happy to talk about my mental health because I wasn't diagnosed. Since I've been diagnosed, I don't want to tell people and guide people in a direction to be assessed or anything because I've just been going through hell for so long. Well, maybe this can take away some of the sting of the hell that you're talking about. So I'm sure we're looking at the same page. I'm going to find there's thousands of people going through the same thing. I'm well, sure not there is. any better, but... Sure there is. I hope you're looking at the same number of one eight six six five eight five zero four four five. That's the one. I'll say it slower for anyone who would like to jot it down. It doesn't matter if you've had a formal diagnosis either. You think you want to talk to someone about something concerning your mental well-being? This is a good, op- good option, 24-7, 365. 
0445. It's called Wellness Together Canada. There's lots of supports online. You can use the, the option of texting them. You can dial the toll-free number, speak with the counselor. So give that a shot, and maybe you'll have some success with it, and I hope you do. And if you do, let me know. And if you don't, let me know. We'll see if we can put our heads together, come up with something else. Melissa, it's OCD and ADHD and anxiety month and all this, and I got them all, so let's, let's have at her. Let's do it. Yeah. All right, thanks. Good luck, Nick. Hey, buddy. Bye-bye. Let's take a break. When we come back, Harris is in the queue talking about bringing senior hockey back to the West Coast again. Don't go away. And welcome back. Let's go to line number one. Harrison, you're on the air. Good day, sir. Good day to you. Betty, I was one. Oh. I was wondering, could uh, is it possible you'd be able to make some phone calls about bringing senior hockey back here to the West Coast? We got a beautiful Canada Game Center area, and it don't even be used. Yeah, I mean, I know there was a bunch of uh, hockey enthusiasts in the region there, I'm going to say, four or five years ago, made a real good attempt to bring senior hockey back. I think they had teams in Quarterbrook, Deer Lake, Port of Basque, Stephenville, if I'm not mistaken. The crowds were huge every night, bigger than we were drawn here in the Avalon East. Then they ran into the same problem that everyone runs into. Some teams were playing by the rules with imports, some teams weren't. Some teams were playing by the rules with money, some teams weren't. And eventually, it just goes to pot. I don't know if that was... The advent of COVID derailed the senior out there or whatnot, and they were unable to get into the herder, which gives it a bit more of a carrot at the end of a stick for a player. But, yeah, I mean, I played lots of uh, hockey on the west coast of this province, and it looks like an ample opportunity to play in good buildings in front of good hockey fans. Yeah, but wouldn't you agree, uh, like, I'm not against paying in players, like, say, $1,500 a game, but to give them each player in the league a little something to help offset the gas, or to cover the sticks if they break off the stick during the game. Paying players like for a salary? No. But if they need something, or say people who got to travel, or say from down the coast, yep. help out with the gas. I'm all for that. I'm not opposed to it either. I think there's always an opportunity to case by case. Look at some, you know, money for gas, for instance. That's that's one of the easy ones to attend to. But then I'll tell you, Harrison, from experience and having been in the rooms. The question then very quickly becomes, where does it end? Because for some teams, like, I mean, just think about it on the provincial level there, not so long ago. You could have teams that were preparing to play in the Allen Cup, and they might have a uh, an annual budget of $350,000. And then there's other teams playing on a senior circuit that have a budget of $30,000. So where does it actually stop? And where do we allow our trust to be placed that people won't break the God I almost cursed then, I won't break the rules with compensation because that's what happens. It just happens all the time. It's a real problem. Patty, I was one of them players when Deer Lake played Grand Falls. I slept in Deer Lake parking lot all night just to get tickets. Yeah. And how many times did you go to the game to see the Pepsi Center people be out there all night long to get tickets? You got something to do over the winter, and there got to be enough people around that would love the sport enough to come around and play it. For the game and not for the money. The proof's in the pudding. They had f at least four teams in that league a few years ago, and they seem to be having great time and good crowds. Yeah, I look, I'm totally with you. I get it. I don't know. I just, uh, I just think that someone needs to make a couple of calls and start it up again. And UCL line. That's why I guess I'm throwing it out to you here now to see if the interest is there. It always takes someone to be the champion. It always takes one, two, five men or women to grab the bull by the horns and put it on and put the effort in because none of this happens easy. It's something that fans don't always factor into is that there's a lot of time and effort and 
frustration behind the scenes to get anything going, especially when we're talking about senior hockey. It is, but but I know you, I know it would be nice to see it back again. At least it's something to do over the winter. I know some of the men that were involved with the last iteration of uh, West Coast Senior Hockey. I don't know what they're up to these days, but just for curiosity's sake, I'll zip around a couple of emails and see what the conversation has looked like. Is there anybody actually interested? Is anybody doing anything about it? I'm, now they just got me curious. Yes. Yeah. yeah he said. Sorry, go ahead. The East Coast League. Uh, they're going to be up and running this year, are they? Yeah, looks like they're going to have a six-team league with the introduction of the Outer Cove Marines back into the fall. So, yeah, but now remember, it was only a few years ago they only had one team signed up. I think that was 2018 when the league pretty much folded. But now they're back, and they've got the teams that people are familiar with back into the league. So I wish them nothing but the best of luck. But that's been a struggle as well for the people behind that, those scenes. So being in that type of circle, we'll say, make a couple calls and just to see if we can start it up again. I'm happy, out of curiosity's sake, to see if there's anyone working towards it and what's going on. Yeah, why not? No problem. Cool. Thanks, Patty. No sweat, Harrison. All the best. Bye. Bye-bye. Yeah, when they brought the teams back in the West Coast Senior League, and, you know, people can quibble about whether or not they thought there was a, the appropriate type of talent for senior hockey on the ice, and that's not for me to say. I didn't see any of the games. And then there was the concept of whether or not they could be involved in a harder play down in some form or fashion. Because there's nothing quite like knowing that you're going to get the chance, as a senior player in this instance, to get to play for the big prize. Which would indeed entice maybe some of the senior caliber guys at home to say, all right, I'm going back at it. Uh, before we get to the break, let's go to line number two. Sharon, you're on the air. Hey, Patty. Hi. This is my first time, so have patience. No problem. Go right ahead. Okay. Uh, yes. Uh, yes. When, what's today? Thursday. Tuesday afternoon, I was in the Orange Door on Kemet Road, right next to the uh, Crossroads Motel. Okay. So anyway, I went in and I had to buy a couple of things, and so I laid my keys on top of the counter. The keys t- to start my car, my key cards, my house cards, my postbox cards, my door cards. My house keys. So anyway, this lady came in behind me, and she was in a hurry. So I stepped aside of her because I had to get something else, and I already rang what I had. So when I went back, I bought something else. Then I went to grab my keys, and they were gone. <laughs> so anyway, I looked everywhere, and I went back yesterday, and I asked them, you know, because I left my phone number, and I asked them, did anybody return them? And they said no. But the manager was there, and she went on the the cam, you know, the security camera. camera. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I'm sorry. And uh, so anyway, she looked it up and she asked me what time and everything. So I looked at it too and watched me coming in, and then I went aside and let her. And I've seen her taking my keys. <laughs> now, she probably doesn't know, because I think she's probably between 75 to 85. I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I shouldn't say that, because but she was an older woman. And uh, we watched her going out into a car. We did zoom in on the license plate. And I, I won't be able to give that over the line. No, no. But, okay. but, and I know, and I called the RMC. And they said, unfortunately, it's out of jurisdiction because it was a New Brunswick case. 
and it was a red uh, Civic, red Civic new Brunswick license plate. And I put it on social media, and, and I mean, she could be staying with somebody here. She's probably on her way back to New Brunswick. I don't know. But anyway, if there's anybody out there that's listening that have somebody staying with them from New Brunswick with the red Civic, it's like a hatchback. Well, I think it's a Civic anyway. And um, with a New Brunswick license plate with an older woman. Uh, yeah, I'm not going to give my phone number that's okay David has it and we'll, we'll be sure to share it with anyone who says okay I know where those keys are and you know I, I, I haven't seen the video but if it's a, an older lady it's unlikely she's in the auto theft ring so they're not coming for your no. car she, maybe someone just you know I tell you what there was a bag of nacho crunches on the counter one time that someone had laid down while they went to get a hot dog I took them because I thought I bought them because I like those cheesies <laughs> so We'll see. If anyone contacts us, we'll be happy enough to share your information, your contact number here, and hopefully we can reunite you with the keys because there's nothing worse than that little pang of worry about where the keys might end up or the nuisance with having to get them all recut. So I get it. Absolutely. And I, I wouldn't even know where to get them cut because Johnny got, especially well, my my house key, I got it off my daughter because she always has my house key just in case something happens. But uh, I got it in my house. And I had to go back to her place in paradise, and uh, but I can't get in my mailbox, and my 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 starter is on it, and everything else for you know for the winter. But anyway, anything we help, Patty, I would appreciate that. So it's the orange store up by the crossroads of Callens there. Uh, Road, yeah. Yeah. If anybody knows someone that's. Staying with someone who's got a red Honda Civic hatchback with New Brunswick plates and, and uh, potentially an older woman may indeed have inadvertently picked up the keys. If you know this circumstance, please call us and we will put you in touch with Sharon and the keys can go home. I appreciate this. Fingers crossed, Sharon. Thank you so much, Pat. I really appreciate it. You're most welcome. Take care. Okay. Have a wonderful day. You too. Bye-bye. All right. Bye-bye. Uh, there we go. So every time there's a loss, something or other, Someone says to put it on Facebook. All right. Let's put that to Sharon, too. Sharon, you can put it on the Facebook group. It's called NL Lost and Found. And, you know, sometimes I get it. If someone lost their their keys on the path, that's a lost key. Someone inadvertently picked them up off the counter. Maybe a different set of circumstances. But, uh, Sharon, if you're still listening, if you want to put that. She said she used social media, so maybe she used NL Lost and Found as well. But... We shall see. Speaking of the lost stuff, did you see the story, Dave, or anybody else, with the lady who had lost her wedding ring 14 years prior, out while tending the garden? 14 years later, it just the, the ring happened to fall onto the growth of a new carrot. And when they pulled out the carrots, there was the ring embedded in the carrot. 14 years later. Amazing story. Well, let's take a break. When we come back, Claire's in the queue to respond to a, a caller not long ago. That was Nick. Don't go away. Got plans for midnight? Bring your VOCM along with the best soundtrack for every night, anywhere. The VOCM All Night Show. Midnight on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Uh, let's go to line number three. Claire, you're on the air. Oh, hi, Patty. Can you hear me there? I can hear you loud and clear. Okay, Grant. Um, yeah, I was just calling in response to, I believe it was Nick that was talking about mental health thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I just, I related lots to lots of the things he was talking about because I also have had lots of different diagnoses over the years. And um, I'm, I'm trying, 
I've got a few points wrote down here because I've got ADHD myself <laughs> and um, we tend to be a little long-winded sometimes. Yeah, you take your time. Yeah. Go right ahead. <laughs> a little all over the place, but... Um, well, I just wanted to comment on a couple of things he mentioned because, um, you know, he talks about how he obviously found all these coping strategies in his own life to become quite successful. And then all of a sudden when diagnosis comes in, you're kind of told, you know, you, there's all these things you can't do. And I just think um, I've been through the mental, you know, the, the system, as you might call it, since I was, say, 15, um, getting different forms of therapy and treatment for depression and anxiety and all sorts of things and um, I think that there, there's a bit of a deficit perspective that we all have that stigmatizes us um, where we tend to think of there's something wrong with you if you're experiencing these things but uh, when in fact usually it's that something probably happened to you that caused your body to start dysregulating itself or um, you know depression and anxiety these things are like very normal human experiences Obviously, they're also disorders sometimes, but that was one little point I wanted to make. And um, It's a big point. <laughs> yeah, and like myself in seeking treatment as well, it's, I've gotten a lot of awesome things from it, totally. I, like I have a lot of good coping skills, and I did something with a therapist called cognitive behavioral therapy and, um, you know, exercise. Like I've tried all the, all the approaches basically. Um, but I think some negative things have also come from seeking treatment and getting diagnosis. Because, for example, say when I was 15 and I, you know, my parents kind of took me to see a psychiatrist at the Janeway because basically I was struggling really badly with depression and anxiety. But at that time, I had no way to kind of communicate it effectively. Mm-hmm. And um, but. Anyways, when I look back, it's like a lot of the stuff I was going through was basically, you know, things are kind of extreme when you're an adolescent. But I think getting labeled um, with the, you know, the labels can be a good and a bad thing because you do you need the help. But then getting labeled as a depressed person, I think, really kind of messed up my own perception of myself. And, you know, I've always been a pretty active learner. So I've always read up as much as I can and all on everything. And tried to be proactive and being a good person myself so you know a lot of the stuff that I read about mental illness and depression and things just told me how screwed I was for lack of a better word. (laughs) Well you know what I can understand that uh, because I can understand where someone says well once I got the diagnosis I questioned everything around me how I worked my personal relationships whether or not this was my fault or what has gone wrong in my life was it because of me I can understand how that all works I would imagine though that going undiagnosed might lead to a compound of those issues where if you never know as to what you're actually dealing with and strategies to cope yeah. with or treatments for, then it might be even worse down the road. So maybe, and it's not for me to say, I'm not a psychologist, but when we do that long-term view, the so, so-called cost-benefit analysis, the diagnose in the long run would be better than the not knowing, even if we have to struggle with getting over the stigma, uh, the questions that we ask ourselves about how we've acted, how we've performed, how we've behaved. I would, you know, and I'm just spitballing this out loud because I don't know, and it's an individual circumstance that will rule the day, but I would imagine long-term not knowing is worse than short-term absolutely knowing. Yeah, I I think you're totally right, and I guess where a bit of, like, the nuance of this conversation would come in is that, you know, there's always a lot of misdiagnosis, and then... Um, like, you know, and I think myself and a lot of other people have had this experience where 
Also, comorbidities exist a lot with mental illness, which is that you'll have one condition and there's oftentimes a handful of other conditions associated with it. So, you know, if, for example, if you have ADHD, there's often like depression and anxiety as comorbidities. So the diagnosis process is, is really complicated too. But anyways, I'm not telling anyone to not go get treated no, or no. get diagnosis because you're, you're right, that's helpful. But I guess as like I also get really frustrated myself as someone who has my own struggles and I feel like I relate to the things Nick was talking about where like it, it can be a bit annoying because we are always having this kind of conversation about stigma but then the ones living it you you're always facing the stigma and we kind of stigmatize ourselves too when we judge ourselves and um I, I think like there's yeah I've, I've been through it all and I just wanted to share a few of the tangible things that have really helped me and so one of them is like it's great to seek professional help but nobody I, I I find like someone that's had an experience similar to yours will often have a lot to offer you as well so I think that like um, peer support is invaluable like finding other people who have walked down that same path and it's not really about the credentials or anything it's just someone that's had that experience that's where I've ended up finding a lot of help as well like yes I've had help through therapy and I still get help through talking to a psychologist on a regular basis and medication etc but um, peer like just the human connection and people understanding you I find goes the furthest and I think in Newfoundland, too, like, we all want to support our families, but mental health is kind of a new thing, and it's scary, and, you know, we're loaded down with intergenerational trauma here, just the same as a lot of other communities. So it's it's a heavy thing, and, like, when you try and talk about it with your family, you don't know the other things that the people in your family have gone through that have been really difficult that maybe they've never talked about, you know? So, um Anyways, I, I am kind of going on a bit of no, a... That's okay. Well, let me ask you a question then, uh, so yeah. we can get back on track then. So when a diagnosis is given formally, do yeah. they also tell you what to expect with your own personal reaction and how to maybe consider how you start to question a variety of things in your life? Or do they simply say, okay, here's next steps. Here's how we're going to treat it. Here's the kind of schedule for your consultations or your, con your, your uh, counseling sessions. Or do they say, okay, here's what's very normal. You're going to think this. You're going to say that. You're going to hear this. You're going to hear that. And here's how to deal with it. Is that part of a diagnosis? Um, I mean, no, not at all. Not necessarily. It probably like should be. That I think it absolutely should be. But there's definitely no one-size-fits-all approach, right? No, no. And I guess it, it depends how you thought the treatment. But, no, there's not. It's kind of the same as a lot of things. It's not, like, one particular person's fault. But, or the like, it is probably a systemic problem. But there isn't a lot of... Um, you know, same as everything. There's not there's not enough resources, but I think like we we have to again, like there no we don't have the resources we need. And then, like Nick said too, there's there's a like there's so much poverty in the province and so many people financially struggling. And some of us are lucky and have access to therapy and things like that. But like the reality is, most people don't have access to the system. Or don't have access to the resources they would need to access the system. You know, like there's all those barriers as well when you have problems like that too. That it's really hard for someone who doesn't struggle with it to appreciate as well, race because a lot of things that. Um, anyways, I am veering off a bit again, but it's okay. I think peer peer support, and then I think the other thing I've learned too is, yeah, you really have to. Um, I'm working on this myself, kind of try and take things into your own hands. 
and recognize that, you know, everyone's going to give you a different opinion, but you've got to kind of try and get in tune with yourself. That's a big, big part of it. And, um, yeah, you know, don't don't judge yourself <laughs> so much when you're struggling through the day-to-day things. Yeah, exactly. And, um, we all have to find yeah. our, a way to give ourselves a break. I mean, we yeah, just do. Totally. Yeah, you're right. That's I, I think in Newfoundland, too, we're all pretty self-critical, you know. <laughs> Claire, listen, I'm glad you made time for the show. There was no ramble. I enjoyed the conversation. You're always welcome back. Oh, thanks. I appreciate that. Thanks, Patty. Take good care. You, too. Okay, bye-bye. Uh, let's take a break. Don't go away. Welcome back. Let's go to the top of the board. Good morning, Pat Collins. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you today? Doing okay. Thanks. How you doing? Oh, good. Just calling in now to uh, let people know that about our upcoming haunted hike on the haunted heritage hike for the Exception Bay Museum. Sure. It's our annual fundraiser, and it's a it's an historic thing that we do, but it's also a little frightening. <laughs> we uh, we take some prominent characters that are past, and uh, this year is an all new. Uh, group this is our sixth time doing it but this time people who come to our event will uh, will see uh, significant characters from our past some of them not so great some of them very significant but still frightening um judge bennett is going to come back he was the guy who uh, oversaw the magisterial inquiry with the affray here the famous affray Ch- wrongly charged the policeman for a killing there he's coming back to have a few words um we also got a visit from uh, garrett sears he was brutally murdered uh, here in our town, uh, uh, you know, uh, a sad situation, but a certainly uh, not not a great scene that people should, should want to see, but uh, it's something that's going to serve to be a little bit frightening. We have uh, also uh, some sisters of presentation who, uh, who were here many, many years ago. They're going to come back and talk a little bit about how they were uh, unjustly treated. Um, so we have a number of different significant characters that are going to be appearing that had some had some very very important roles to play in our town, and uh, I think people will enjoy it um, to, to, if they want to come around. October twenty eighth, uh, past, uh, starting at seven thirty, and right leading from our museum and traveling east. So uh, it's uh, it's a walking tour. It's about uh, less than a half kilometer walk, but I think uh, so far it's gone over very well. We've had as many as three hundred three hundred twenty people. Uh, to our event, and so Undertaker Art Rogers are going to lead people through again. So uh, I wanted to make that announcement on your open line this morning. So I'm glad you did. You. Tell us a little bit more about how the sisters were unfairly treated, or thought they were. What was what's going on there? Yeah, well, indeed, they were back in the when uh, Bishop Carfanini was here. Bishop Henry Carfanini, he was a he was a kind of a power hungry sort of a, a bishop. He sort of felt that the, the benevolent Irish Society. Uh, any any community that had, uh, uh, say, leanings toward being non-denominational, or anybody, in fact, that was under his purview in his town, in in his under his parish, uh, he felt that the diocese was all he was all controlling. So the sisters had uh, had been uh, had, they, had, they had been given a, a fair size acre farm farm here in Harbor Grace, uh, where the church now exists, and. Uh, they they were making a good dollar there. They had many people in their employ, farmers and so on, who were actually renting land from them as well. And this Bishop uh, Carfanini, he came here. He felt that he should control the, the purse of those presentation sisters. Um, even though they had been established here for a long time, since 19, 1850, and he was here in, in 1880s, early 1880s, and of course, towards the end of his uh, episcopacy, he, um, he really tried to take over everything. So he used his man, their father Falconio, to uh, 
to muscle in on the nuns, and they rejected that, and uh, it was a quite the uh, upheaval, of course, even among the laity when they saw this happening. So we have two sisters that were here, uh, particularly a sister, Xavius uh, Lynch. Um, she led, she led the, the fight against the bishop. Imagine how strong she must have been a woman, and then presentation sisters were very strong always, still are, I'm sure. But back then, this this nun, she uh, she led the fight against the bishop, and uh, well, it was uh, it was a very unpleasant time for them. But uh, anyway, the point is that they, he really tried to take over everything, including the sisters. So she's gonna she's gonna make an appearance, and uh, we're gonna hear what she got to say if people come along. Yeah, it sounds excellent. Give the folks the details one more time, Pat. Where the walking tour starts and what time? Okay. Well, we're only leaving from the. Uh, the, the museum now, which is currently being renovated, um, we're going to leave from that. You, you go well and travel east. We begin at 7:30. As uh, $10 an adult, $5 for children. Uh, we're recommending that children, you know, can come to this, but they should be supervised by their parents because the the nature of the of the uh, of the event is such that it's going to be up to parents who want their children to see these kinds of things. So sure. at 7:30 on the 28th, Patrick. Thank you very much for taking my call. Good to have you on, Pat. Okay, nice talking to you. You too. Bye-bye. All the best. Bye-bye. Bye. All right, let's take a break for the news. When we come back, lots of time to speak with you on a topic of your choosing. Don't go away. Take a break. Join us weekdays from 1230 to 1 p.m. as we discuss anything and everything that's happening now. It's all on the table during your VOCM lunch break. And welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number six. Good morning, Starlin. You're on the air. Good morning. Um, I was calling in to talk about attention deficit hyperactive disorder and how I think there's a lot more uh, treatments besides the medical model treatment of cognitive behavioral therapy. Oh, I'm sure there are, such as? Well, um, art therapy for sure. So I've been studying art therapy, and it seems like for adults, uh, working with art, they can experience a positive shift in the way they relate to themselves and understand themselves, and that might be the root cause. So what is included or considered art therapy? Is it taking it upon yourself to draw or to color or to paint or something, or is it to admire and to uh, explore art? What is it? Um, Neither. Uh, It's neither. Okay, good shot. But some of those components can be a factor. So art therapy is done by a registered art therapist. It's a form of psychotherapy. Um, And you don't have to be an artist to do art therapy. Um, Art therapy doesn't always look pretty like art. Um, And there's a lot of registered art therapists in Newfoundland and Labrador. Art therapy, animal-assisted therapy, um, and yoga are three of the things that can make a change in a person, and a person can see that change and get get to the root of the problem. Let, let me ask this, this, and this not to be uh, dismissive of anything, because whatever helps, helps. Are art therapists trained professionals? Oh, yes. So some people do art just to relax, you know, like coloring, uh, painting, rug hooking. But art therapy is a professional who studied psychotherapy and uh, added art as a form to heal, a non-traditional way to heal and shift a person's attitude towards themselves. 
So it's all about how the person feels about themselves. It's an internal process, and art therapy can can really help people because you can have a family for art therapy, or you can have an individual, and uh, the focus is not on the person. The focus is on the art, but it allows for the magic to happen and the shift of the ego to happen. And um, I think it, it's really, um, is, there's not as much stigma attached to art therapy as a traditional um, visiting a psychotherapist or visiting a psychologist or psychiatrist. Um, art therapy can happen in schools. It can happen at daycare centers. It can happen in a counseling session or it can happen out on the land, on the beach with families. So I think it's the way forward, and it can be cheaper than cognitive behavioral therapy. We see it in action in different settings, uh, like at rehabs, and I know at uh, like correctional institutes, whether it be a garden or art therapy or like spirit horse for animal-related therapy. So it does happen in these very controlled settings as well. Yes, and so yes, the art can be something that helps someone shift. An animal can also help someone shift because if a person is with a horse, for example, horse-assisted therapy, um, the person is always in the present moment focusing on the horse because it's dangerous if you're not. So therefore, you're forced to be in the present moment, not worrying about the future or the past. And uh, when you start to know how that feels like and you want to be in that situation in the present moment, you can always get back to it with your art therapy or your animal-assisted therapy or your gardening just through the smells. So, yeah, all those are factors. And some of these things have been used traditionally uh, for healing with indigenous people and all people. For example, berry picking and going out on the land hunting and having a meal together. With animal therapy, and (laughs) it's not trying to make a direct relationship, but it makes me think of things like roots of empathy bringing a baby into a classroom and all of a sudden your consideration and concern or empathy is about the well-being of the animal in, in the case of spirit horse and or the child or the baby in the case of roots of empathy it's a nice way to i don't know what the right word is it's not a distraction but it's a way to consider something other than yourself as a form of treatment am i on the right track or am i missing something here yes because um because you're in a relationship with the animal or with the art therapist or the art or the garden. So people are are harmed in relationship, and they also heal in relationship. So this is something you're actively involved with, or are you a therapist? Well, yes to both. So okay. I'm a, a compassionate inquiry therapist right now, and I'm studying to do indigenous art therapy, and I've completed one year. So I have one year to go before I'm a registered art therapist. But um, I've it's helped me to heal myself and others, and I know it's the right way. So I just wanted to share it because it's so exciting. Is there a formal art therapy association in this province? Uh, well, it's from Ontario, okay. Ontario Art Therapy Association, but we do have at least 10 registered art therapists in this province. There's one in Cornerbrook and um, Sandra Hewlett-Parsons, Harbor. I think it's Harbor First Therapies, and uh, there's many in St. John's, and 
hopefully there will be more all the time. But art therapy um, should be considered a form of therapy for insurance purposes, as should animal-assisted therapy. What is it? Um, not quite. Well, it is in Labrador through the Jordan's principle, but it's not recognized here in Newfoundland yet for insurance purposes, but we're working on that now. I think things like this are expanding all the time. For instance, in British Columbia, they were giving out park passes for free for people to use as part of their therapy to enjoy the outdoors. We know what that can mean for your overall mental well-being, and they're going to see that covered. So these types of, I don't know if it's appropriate to call them alternatives, I suppose they are, but whatever works, works. And I don't mean to go down the road of things that you might be dealing with someone who's not accredited and doesn't have a code of conduct or standards of practice. You know, if it works for somebody, then that's that's all we're hoping for, isn't it? Yes, well... um uh, the people who are registered as our therapists do have standards of ethics, and they're registered and regulated, so it is a safe place to do non-traditional forms of therapy. Sounds interesting to me. I'll have to look something up and find, because inevitably someone's going to say, how can I connect with an art therapist if it's something they might be interested in, just to try something else or something new. And I'll try to figure out some contact, unless you'd like to share something here live on the air this morning. Well, uh, like I said, uh, Sandra Hewlett Parsons is an art therapist in Cornerbrook. Okay. And uh, in St. John's, I I can't retrieve the name of the art therapist quickly, um, but I can follow up and send them to you. Yeah, if you don't mind, my email address is an easy one. It's just openline at vocm.com. Okay, I'll do that. I appreciate the time, and thanks for this, darling. Thank you. You're welcome. Okay. Okay, bye-bye. Look, uh, the big, the be-all and end-all is to try to find something that works for you. So it may indeed be with spirit horse. It may indeed be with an art therapist. It might be with Melanie at yoga. It might be through some form of meditation. And a lot of these self-helps are out there where you don't even need an intervention, in, intervention of a professional. You know, so people search around. And if it works, it works. You know, I think that's part of the whole stigma conversation, too, the old East meets West medicine type of approach. And I think most people, if they're dealing with whatever it is, physical or mental ailments, if something works, that's all you're hoping for. Now, of course, you always have to be careful with, say, for instance, a self-medication approach, which may lead to even more problems. But if art therapy works for you and you learned about it from Starlin this morning, excellent. Uh, Let's take a break. Don't go away. And welcome back. Let's go. Line number two. Donna, you're on the air. Hi, Patty Daly. How are you today? Doing very well, thanks. How are you doing? Good. Um, I got a little bit of a situation on the go. I'm living in housing. I don't want to say which housing. Um, but I'm presently living in housing. Um, I did an interview with uh, VOCM there about a year and a half ago about my ceiling falling in and not they weren't repairing it or anything. Anyways, that was repaired after. The problem is now that um, I'm trying to get a transfer. They did transfer me from one place down to the other place downstairs. But now I'm getting accessible. I'm I'm going to soon need a wheelchair. I have a walker now. And I asked them if they would transfer me, and they won't. And I have doctor's notes stating that I have health problems. My, my health is deteriorating. Anyways, um, I went to the other housing, um, 
Can I say the name of the housing? Uh, sure. Okay, I went to NL Housing to see if I could get help in their housing. They said, yes, um, I can, I've been accepted to go on the Canadian Benefit Program with uh, Newfoundland Labrador Housing. Okay. Now, the problem is they told me I have to go out and find a place, and I've gone out for the past year looking for a place, and I can't get nothing. And I'm stuck in an apartment in St. John's Housing, okay? It's cold here. It's, um, I live up over a garage, um, and it's very, very cold. My light bill is like $300, and um, I'm on social assistance. I'm, I'm very sad to say I'm on social assistance, but I can't work right now. Um, and I'm not getting any help, and I'm not being heard. And I need to get out of here because my health and the place I'm in is cold, and it's just not healthy here. Yeah, I mean, the issue surrounding whether it be the number of vacancies at Newfoundland Labrador Housing and the pace was, was with pardon me, with which they're being repaired, folks with different, separate, distinct needs for the type of housing they need. I mean, these are long, lengthy lists add into it. We've got a housing yeah. problem anyway in this area. We just do. The vacancy rate is so, so low that regardless if you're looking for housing supports and or simply just trying to rent a place, it's just a really tough spot out there. It is. It's really hard. And I've gone to, you know, I've gone to places to look at them. There's been lineups there, you know, and it's like, what am I supposed to do? Like, you know, is there any way I can get some help? Is it if I reached out to open line, would, you know? Sometimes. Sometimes it does work. Um, so I, I don't know if this is going to be helpful, but I'm going to give you the name of an organization, and they might be able to point you in a helpful direction. And they're called End Homelessness St. John's. I actually met one of the uh, staff there, uh, met them last night, that trivia night. But Doug Pawson is the executive director. They've got some relationship with some landlords that can maybe be accommodating to folks with separate, distinct needs. So if you get a, give it a Google, End Homelessness St. John's, they might be able to give you some helpful advice. Okay. What is it? Something homeless? It's End, like E-N-D. Mm -hmm. And homelessness, yeah. St. John's. St. John's. Yeah. Okay. Give yeah. that a try. Yeah, that's great. I just wanted to get that out there because, I mean, I know there's a unit free down at the end there. Now that's a two bedroom and it's a bit more accessible, but they won't they won't let me have it, and it it just doesn't make sense to me. You know. Yeah, and I guess when on the outside looking in, it's hard to know what the list of people waiting and looking. Is really reflects in the numbers and the different needs but try this outlet they might be able to help you out if they don't or if they can't and you get back in touch with me i'll go back to the drawing board oh, okay all right thank you so much petty daily and you have a great day same to you donna all the best Thanks. you're welcome bye-bye bye -bye. all right before the news let's go to line number four good morning heather you're on the air hi how are you grand how about you Oh, not too bad. Um, so I wanted to call in today. Uh, I was just listening, actually, about the animal therapy, and I have to agree. Horses are amazing animals for therapy because you certainly do have to focus on them. Um, but today I wanted to call and focus on one of our amazing animals, one of our dogs, um, and that's our St. Bernard Brody that we have. And um, this guy... He's going to need some support from the public, and I'll tell you a little bit about him. He uh, he came into the rescue. He hasn't had the best of luck, 
So he was surrendered to us when one of his owners became sick and uh, actually has since passed away. So he came into us and he went into a trial adoption. It didn't work out. He came back. He went into foster and that didn't work out. And, and he's a great dog, you know, but sometimes people aren't used to big dogs and stuff. And for different reasons, things happen. Anyways, we um, we took him back and that night his stomach flipped and he ended up bloating. So we found ourselves at the vet specialty center with him. And um, anyways, he's surviving. He's, you know, he's doing okay. But now we're faced with a um, $16,000 vet bill. So we are, you know, as a rescue, obviously struggling to figure out how we're going to, to pay this bill. Um, you know, I brought him in there myself. Um, but when the veterinarian came in the room, I mean, it wasn't a question of, you know, his life or money. I mean, I couldn't make that decision. There's no price on a life for me when it comes to the animals or humans or anybody. So we did the surgery, um, the vet specialty center, um, we're good enough to let us pay a lesser deposit than you would normally pay. So we paid the deposit and, and they continue with surgery. Um, but like I said, we're, we're faced with this astronomical bill that we have to pay. So I wanted to call in, you know, tell his story and I'm praying that people will help uh, support us and, and pay his bill. Cause we need to pay his bill and bring him home eventually. Sure. Do you have anything formally set up? Um, we have uh, an EM tra or EMT, I guess, that you can transfer to at donate at rescuenl.com. And they can also call the vet specialty center at 221-7838. And, um, you know, I want to thank everyone that has uh, donated so far. We do have a huge amount of supporters. I mean, the public has been great. But, like, as I said, it is a big amount. So we do need a lot of people supporting us to get, you know, this, this bill pays. And he may need another surgery yet. We're not sure. His intestines are in quite bad shape. And, uh, you know, we're hoping he doesn't need it, and we're hoping it's not going to cost us more money. But right now, the estimate um, is, is six, a little over, well, 16425 think, $425. So we're hoping it doesn't go over that. Um, and we're hoping he doesn't need the other surgery, but we definitely need to raise that money to, uh, you know, to be able to take him home and uh, pay his bill. So, and I should say, sorry, um, on our Facebook page, people can go there. There is, uh, we do have a fundraiser set up uh, there as well. People can donate $10 and they can have a chance to win an iPad um, and a, a laptop as well. But they can go there and, you know, we're going to post uh, updates or we have been posting updates. And I just actually got a recent update this morning that um, he's just started eating a little bit today. Um, however, his heart rate is up. So he's doing okay. He's not completely in the clear yet, but... Uh, he's doing okay, so he's. We think he's going to make it through. Like I said, whether he'll need another surgery, um, we're not sure, but he's doing okay. He's managing right now. Give us the EMT address one more time. Sure, donate at rescuenl.com. Appreciate this. Good luck, Heather, with it. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Take care. All right. Okay. Bye. All right. Bye. Bye. Uh, let's see here. So, okay, it's time for the news. Kind of lost my place with where we are on the clock. When we come back, we're talking a bit of fire prevention, and then Sylvia has an extraordinary story to tell, as far as I can uh, surmise by the subject line. Anyway, don't go away. Saturday morning, join us for the Irish Newfoundland Show. Send your request to irishnl at vocm.com or submit them online at vocm.com. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number six. Good morning, Sylvia. You're on the air. 
morning, Patty Davis, Deity. How are you? Excellent, thank you. How you doing? I'm good, thank you, and I am alive. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So I died in June. How'd you die? I, I, they weren't able to tell me that. Okay. Uh, I, I got a letter on Monday or Tuesday telling me to the estate, to my estate, and uh, require, uh, you know I had to pay back my GST check. So I knew I was checking into it, and the reason for pay, having to pay it back is because I died. I'm dead. <laughs> I shouldn't oh, be laughing because it's not well, funny. I did. I did. <laughs> Oh, how did they establish that you were dead? Do you happen to know how they uh, no, thought that? They did t- no, but they did tell me that um, I died in June. Well, my condolences well, thank you to very your much. friends and family. So what what do you have to do to prove you're not dead? Is this call going to suffice, or do you have to do a little no, jig I, in front of someone? Patty, the reason I called uh, was because I think other seniors need to know this in case it happens to them too. Okay, what did so you have to do? I, I phoned uh, I phoned the GST crowd, and um, the lady was very nice. She spent two hours on the phone with me, Patty, and I think she's got it straightened up. I think. Okay. Then I called. Uh, she told me to call uh, OIS. Called them, and they said, well, according to the records, there's nothing changed. So anyway, um, I called somewhere else. Yes. Oh, I called. God, I don't know where I called it. I made so many phone calls yesterday, and they said they think it is it is straightened up, but uh, I will be weeks before I get my uh, my check. Yeah, you know it's funny how something can happen so quickly. This mistake yes. being made, but then the weeks it takes to rectify it. Yes, yes. And I said to the, I said to her like, um, okay, you know when I died. Now, what is my cause of death? She wasn't going to tell me that. Right? No. But if I died, and to get everything straightened up, they would have had to have uh, had to have my uh, uh, thing from the funeral parlor, right? It's strange. So the summary is: What should people do if they run into this particular circumstance? Yeah. Well, Patty, Dave, uh, listen. I had uh, had a, got, got a copy here from um, oh my CBC. There is a lot of it happening. There was one woman in Mississauga, Ontario, according to these papers from CBC, there was one woman in um, Mississauga, Ontario. She had to wait 12 months before she got her check. Nothing but a runaround. Hmm. No good. I, no. I'll see if there's a fast-track way to prove yourself alive. <laughs> to yeah, yeah, really, right? Uh, oh, I, was talking, uh, I was talking to... Um, well, it so happens he's, uh, I know his mom and everything, and yesterday when I called uh, um, the minister's office, uh, it was him that answered, and he said, I do need to get in contact with Terrence Ch- uh, Rogers, because it's federal. Yeah, that's right. Well, if we're talking about any GST complications right. or implications, yes, you always have to deal with the federal government. Yes. And yes, let's put our staffers and parliamentarians to work so they can rectify it quicker, hopefully, and get the money flowing quicker, yeah, hopefully. Yeah, yeah, And I don't have to repay it because right now they're called, uh, I was supposed to pay uh, J- uh, July's uh, GST check back to them. I just hope that they don't uh, have the, can, don't go into my bank account and take it. I hope not. Have you called Terrence's office? I don't know if I heard I, that I part. Did, but I, I did, but I, I, I couldn't get uh, through to him yesterday, and uh, 
am I just expecting a call back today, right? Okay, there's someone listening in that office uh, for sure. So okay, if okay. you're working for Charles Roger, Charles Rogers, pardon me, please do check your voicemail, get Sylvia's message because she is I'm most certainly that. alive. But it's not a Sylvia. That's the, my, oh, that's your name. that's your fake name for the show. No, that's my second name. Oh, is it? Okay. My middle name, right? Okay, that's good enough. Okay. They'll they'll know the message. But the person who called about being not dead. It be not dead, yeah, right, yeah. Uh, so I just figured that you know seniors need to be aware of this because you know if I I I don't even know why I even bothered opening the letter, you know. Well, if it happened what to you thought, and you said to some lady in Mississauga and at the 12 months she waited. Many, many more, many, yeah. many more, apparently, no across the country. Well, hopefully it doesn't happen to very many more. And yeah. uh, let me know what Church Rogers' office says. I'll be curious to hear. Oh, oh, I will, so, okay. Okay, thank you. Okay, bye-bye Take now. Care. Thank you for taking the call. Bye-bye. Happy to do it. Bye-bye. Thank you. And I'm happy you're alive enough to make it. Uh, let's go to line number five say good morning to the... Counselor and lead on protective services in the town of Portugal, Cove, St. Phillips. That's Gavin Wills. Good morning, Gavin. You're on the air. Uh, yeah, good morning, Patty. It's uh, nice speaking with you again. Happy to have you on. Thank you. And uh, I just wanted to, uh, to to remind people that this is Fire Prevention Week in uh, in Newfoundland and Labrador. And uh, the, uh, the, the theme is Fire Won't Wait, Plan Your Escape. And uh, the fire department uh, in Portugal, St. Phillips, just like uh, the fire departments throughout this province and the provincial government, are saying that uh, are, are asking people to think seriously about how you would uh, uh, escape your home if uh, if a smoke alarm rings and you've got a fire in your house. If you make a plan, then of course everyone would be familiar with the plan and able to execute the plan because the fear that comes with the fire alarm going off can absolutely cause you to freeze. So it's an excellent piece of advice. It is indeed, and uh, the, the uh, it's a, and uh, a few things you should you, you should consider is that uh, are there are there members of your of your of your household who are very very young uh, or uh, elderly uh, who had. Or and, uh, and or dis, you know disabilities that could impede uh, their ability to escape, and, uh, and you should re- really plan that into uh, think about how you would deal with that in uh, how, the, uh, how if a fire is to uh, is to break out, and, uh, and a couple of other things that, uh, that uh, you should also uh, also think about is that uh, we're, uh, the clocks will be going back, you know, I think on November the sixth. And that's and that's when you should change the uh, the batteries in your smoke alarm and and renew them for for another six months. Uh, it's always helpful when we have these little days that uh, trigger the the click in your mind. Okay, today's the day when I'll change the batteries. You know something on that front, which I find to be startling, is like we talk about building codes and the aftermath of Fiona and those types of things. But the way that materials that we build our homes with and how flammable they are compared to, let's say, a home that was built in 1959, it is just remarkable. There's all kinds of videos out there to display what I'm talking about. But before you know it, you can be in serious trouble in your home. So a plan is imperative. So I would hope that people pay heed to your well-intentioned advice here and do exactly that. And you're right. I mean, in my home, our escape plan with two full-grown boys and myself my wife is much different than if I had a toddler and a baby and or someone in a wheelchair or nan or someone in the house so yeah tailor it up for your own distinct needs yeah and you can even and uh, 
and, you, and it's also recommended that you actually uh, perform a fire drill. And it's, uh, I mean, children do this in, in, in schools, I suspect. I haven't, I haven't been yeah, they do, yeah. children for a while, but uh, yes, okay, they do. So, so if it's good enough for, your, for children in school, it should be good enough for you as well in your own house. Why not? You never know. It might feel and sound a bit corny, and you might get a question from the neighbor, but the next thing you know, if it worked for you, then the, the corny goes by the wayside. It's much better to be safe and sound than it is to be embarrassed or <laughs> questioned out on the front lawn or wherever right. your muster spot is. Yeah, you're right. Good stuff. Thanks for the time and the advice this morning, Gavin. You're very welcome, Patty. Take good care. Bye-bye. Bye. Gavin Wills is the counselor and leader on protective services in the town of Portugal Cove. St. Phillips, uh, oh, I just see this out of the corner of my eye, and it's Micah. This is an important question, and I wish I'd gotten back here for a sec because I would have asked it. We've talked about this many times. In so many, let's say, smaller towns, and Portugal Coast St. Phillips isn't exactly a small town anymore, is how important it is for municipalities to have a look at this. It's putting a number on your house, a civic address, so that opposed to, well, it's the greenhouse two doors down from Aunt Millie's is not good enough for a specific set of directions when there's an emergency, whether it be for an ambulance or I guess the fire department might have a better idea where they're going. But that's an important question, Mike, and uh, you're right. We should, I should have, I didn't see it until Mike proposed it after I was saying goodbye, but putting a number on the house, a real civic address for people to respond to when you're in need is probably a very important thing. We've had that conversation with municipalities, Newfoundland and Labrador in the past too, but that's a good one. Uh, final break of the morning. When we come back, we're talking future fund and a bit more moose hunting. Don't go away. I suppose I should press my button. Welcome back. Let's go to line number two. George, you're on the air. Hey, Patty, how are you this morning, boy? Couldn't be better, boy. How you doing? Not, not bad. Not bad. Listen, that's all up on the northern peninsula. He's run into an outfitter up there now that that uh, have had it all to himself for years and considers it his own private hunting ground up there Till now Corps came down and put a power line through his property. And that's got it all opened up to every resident of Newfoundland and Labrador to go hunting for their moose, and he don't like it. Now, that's as simple as that. Sounds like it. And I'll tell you another little story now. Uh, I went fishing on the Great Rattling Brook one time, me and a buddy of mine, and we fished it from Thursday till Sunday and never saw a fish. Now, Great Rattling runs into the exploits, and we checked out the moats and moats of Great Rattling before we went up, and there was four or 5,000 salmon there ready, and they were all moving up Great Rattling. And uh, we went up and got set up. There's a county fence a couple of miles up the river, so we went between the county fence and an outfitter. And uh, we fished from Thursday till Sunday, never saw a fish. Went to the outfitter's camp. You couldn't access the river through his camp. He had a 10-foot-high chain leak fence he had it all blocked off you couldn't get through unless you trespassed on his lodge now that was very good we weren't going to do that so we came back down to the counting fence when we got to the counting fence there were two young fellows there and two empty 40 ounces and we asked them where are all the salmon oh they're down below the fence i said what do you mean they're all down below the fence well the outfitter came down gave us a couple of bottles and told them told us to hold up the salmon till sunday night because he had a party of 11 coming in on Monday morning. So they released all the salmon on Sunday night. They'll all be up in front of Buddy's Lodge on Monday morning and a party of 11 coming in. So there's the arrogance that's going on in this province. 
I think it's like privatization. Wink, wink, nod, nod, privatization. And that's the problem all over the province now, apparently. Not all of them. Not all the outfitters. I can't say it all of them. But that's two experiences uh, that I've had anyway. And I just wanted everybody to know that this is what's going on. And maybe someone should put a question to government and ask them, is it going on and why is it going on? Anyway, Patty, have a good day. And I hope Sylvia is doing well and her family. My condolences to Sylvia. (laughs) Mine too. You know, I I know a couple of people in the outfitting business. They have a business to operate. They're trying to make money. But uh, get over yourself. You don't own the place. Right, you're well, just allowed to operate a business, and you have to operate it fairly with locals and anybody else who's hunting here that's got a license. So, just do what you have to do to run your business, but give everyone a break. If they have a license, then get out of the way. Well, that's right. But uh, apparently, uh, I guess they're figuring that uh, now that Nelcor got that big line coming down through it, opened up the whole hunting area that yep. they had all of themselves now, and uh, he's got them upset, and they don't want the 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 the, the People in Newfoundland and Labrador in there. Too bad. Simple as simple as that. And not only that, Patty, they said because of that that uh, power line coming down the northern peninsula, that was going to be the end of the caribou. Because now you can go in and shoot the caribou anywhere along the power line. And, I mean, uh, at one time you had to work to get an animal. Now you can just stroll up the power line and kill your animal and come on. It does have a lot of implications. There's no doubt about that. Uh, George, I appreciate this. All right, Patty. Take it, take it easy. Have a good day. You too. All the best. All right. All right. Bye-bye. Apparently, we got some time-sensitive information on line number three. Talking about the 33rd Trinity Conception Placentia Healthcare Foundation telethon coming up on line three is Don Coombs. Don, you're on the air. Hi, Patty. How are you doing? Great, sir. You? J- just wanted to reach out, let your listeners know, as you just said, it's our, the 33rd Annual Trinity Conception Placentia Health Nation Telethon this Sunday from 10 a.m. to 8 p.m. It's on East Link Community TV, and the studio is set up at St. Francis School in Harbor Grace. So if you want to phone in, make a pledge, or you want to drop by and say hi, feel free. What's the goal this year, Don, quick, before we run out of time? Like half a million dollars, Patty. Half a million dollars. Got anything earmarked in particular for it? Oh, yes, the equipment list is unreal. A lot of it, uh, 450 is going to the integrated operating room upgrades at the Carabiner General, and the list goes on and on and on. So the people have been good for the last 32 years and look forward to support again Sunday. So, listen, tomorrow let's give them another gentle prod in case they miss this. Thanks, Patty. I'll call you in. Okay, Dom. Appreciate that. All the Cheers, best. Pal. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Here we go. Last word this morning goes to line number one in the PC member for Stephenville Port of Port. That's Tony Wakeham. Tony, you're on the air. Hey, good morning, Patty. I just wanted to call in and talk about uh, the future fund. Uh, We spent uh, yesterday afternoon and last night debating the future fund. But before I get into that particular piece, the other thing that's concerning is, you know, we're debating a future fund before we even have seen the fall fiscal update. I'm not sure that it couldn't have waited until the fall fiscal update was provided to us so we would have a better idea of the fiscal position of the province. Uh, last week we saw $200 million allocated, and yet again with no kind of uh, understanding of where the money is coming from. And uh, again, you know, the fall fiscal update would have provided some insights. Yeah, it's a bit of cart in front of the horse kind of stuff. Uh, I assume that it's, you know, all the timing of what they can include from this in the speech from the throne and pepper good news, with, you know, to try to dim some of the doom and gloom out there. The future fund sounds great. You know, if it's money coming from one-time non-renewables, I get it. The part in there that gives me pause for concern beyond being in front of the fall fiscal update is the sale of government assets. Okay, a six-person uh, trustee board to report to the Department of Finance, number one, 
uh, let's have it report to the House of Assembly. Number two, that would give us the opportunity to debate the sale of assets one by one by one by one. Patty, you're absolutely right. Nobody in our party disagrees with the establishment of a future fund. It's, uh, it's something that is a good idea. However, we have debated yesterday and disagree with some of the legislation and, and what they're proposing to do. And you just hit on one particular issue. Uh, they say right in there that this will, you know, sale of assets, proceeds from sale of assets will go into a future fund. But we have no idea what assets they're talking about. We have not been able, as you know, to see any of what's in the Rothschild report. That remains hidden from the people in Newfoundland and Labrador. That was supposed to tell us what assets are being looked at and what type of values they might have. But again, nothing is provided in terms of information on that particular report, and we're still waiting for it. So that is a big concern when it comes to this whole future fund. Uh, and until government becomes more open and accountable, that's still going to be raised and questions are going to be asked. But again, yesterday, you know, this legislation gives a great deal of authority to cabinet. But considering this is public money, you know, shouldn't the approval of money into and out of the future fund be approved by the House for the people of Newfoundland and Labrador? I mean, that's what the House of Assembly is there to do. Yesterday and last night, we proposed a number of amendments that would have seen this have to come back to the House of Assembly. And the reason we wanted to come back to the House of Assembly, I, I don't think I have to remind your listeners or you or anyone else that it, the history of our province, we've had a lot of times when we've said after the fact, why didn't this come to the House of Assembly? This is an opportunity of establishing a future fund and setting it up so that, yes, we do it right. It's not, and, and that's that's what's going on here. Yes, last night in the in the Liberal government in the debate said no. Technically, they don't have to bring it back to the House of Assembly, and you know another minister said they don't need to. And technically, they're right, Patty. But the bottom line was they don't want to, and that's the concern here. Why would you not want to bring back to the House of Assembly so that you can have a debate on how you spend the money into the future fund? because people will consider it a slush fund. But that's not what it's meant to be. And so the House of Assembly, in my opinion, is open, and let's have a debate, and at the end of the day, then we know we've had the opportunity to talk about how we're going to spend money. We're so quickly running out of time, but here's where uh, what I would say. is It's a future fund. It's going to be there for into the future, and into the future the government will ine inevitably change hands. So if I'm a liberal today, I'm taking that, uh, that recommendation seriously because at some point I might be sitting in the opposition bench but have a real say in matters because I'm one of the 40 elected officials. This is, should not be political. If we can back out 50, 100, 200 million dollars based on fiscal circumstances, people will be able to agree on that, and if not, they should get out of the way. But this future fund w might be in operation for 20 years. We might see government change hands a dozen or a half dozen times by then. So why not make it a bit easier so that people understand that how much is being done, why it's being done, what the intentions are, because before long you might be in government or Siobhan Cody might be in the opposition benches. So if the future holds a lot of different variables, let's make sure all are included in the future. That's exactly right, Patty. Let us never forget that the money that we're talking about is the money belonging to the people in Newfoundland and Labrador. It's not the PC party's money. It's not the Liberal Party's money. It's not the NDP party's money. It's the money that's being spent on behalf of the people in Newfoundland and Labrador. And what better place for them to hold 
uh, governments accountable than in the House of Assembly. Appreciate the time, Tony. Thank you, Patty. Take care. Bye-bye. Tony Wakeham is the PC member for Stephenville Port of Port. Whew. <laughs> that, was, that was a show today. Big thanks to everyone who supports the program, and you know it. We will indeed pick up this conversation again tomorrow morning right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, David Williams, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy day. Let's talk in the morning. Bye-bye.